everybody. It's Brennan, and uh, we have had a lot of awesome guests in season one of Dead Headspace, and we've learned a lot from them. And one piece of information we've kind of taken away is from the great Gabino Iglesias, who says, when you put out a book or a story or any piece of art into the world, nobody's really going to care about it unless you make them. So with that in mind, Patrick and I would like to share a couple pieces of upcoming work that uh, we'd love for you to check out. So first things first, January 11th, the anthology Shiver, edited by Nico Bell, is coming out. And it includes a whole bunch of really, really awesome cold weather horror stories from people like Jessica Guess, Stephanie Raybig, Steve Stred, And I've got a story in there as well called A Shine in the Woods. That's January 11th. You should definitely check that out. My story will be in a anthology called Campfire Macabre, edited by John Braille and Joe Sullivan through Cemetery Gates Media. It's five different themes, spook houses, supernatural slashers, witchcraft, within the woods, and cemetery chillers, with authors such as Andrew Cole, Haley Piper, V. Castro, Tim Wagoner, Sonora Taylor, and so many more. I believe there are 56 authors in total. Uh, the stories are about, I believe, a thousand words, give or take. So there's a lot of stories you can read in one sitting. Campfire Macabre comes out the second week of January 2021. We hope you enjoy both books. So we hope you enjoy both of our stories. Whether you do or do not, well, let us know what you think. Welcome to Dead Headspace. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Ghana, and all other major platforms, which will include YouTube. That's right. You'll be able to watch your favorite episodes from Season 1, including this episode, when Season 2 launches, which will be January 18th, 2021, along with a website dedicated to our guests and other related content to the show. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough. Alongside me, as always, is my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And joining us for season one's finale episode is a special guest host. She's the founder of BuzzBook Expo, author, podcaster, and the queen of cosmic horror, <laughs> Miss Mary San Giovanni. Say hi, hi Mary. Everyone. And our guest, he's an artist, filmmaker, a badass Australian author. And of a few books that we're discussing today, uh, Where the Dead Go to Die and A Place for Sinners, please welcome Aaron Dries. Say hi, Aaron. Hi, everybody. It's very, very nice to see you all. I really got excited that you two said yes to doing this. And before we ask the baseline question, just to kind of set uh, or a little preface for the show, I know you guys are really good friends and... I kind of I'm interested how you guys formed that friendship, how it started. I know, like Mary, I know, like you and Brian posted something. I don't know if it was like 
just a joke or whatever, but you guys said that uh, he's pretty much like your adopted son. I know, <laughs> I know you guys have a good relationship, so I'm super curious how you guys became friends. I think we met at uh, Scares, right? I have a feeling it, it might have even been Nikon. I think it might have been Nikon. <gasps> I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, I think it was. Uh, yeah, I was really nervous to come up and say hi, but I'm glad that I did. <laughs> I'm glad you did too. We were absolutely and instantly enchanted and delighted by Aaron. Uh, and we decided we were going to adopt him and make him one of ours. <laughs> yeah, there's a surprise here. I've actually been kidnapped. I've been living in, in yes. Mary's basement for all throughout 2020. <laughs> I haven't got a lot of sunlight, but I know I'm loved. <laughs> <laughs> but we remember to feed you most of the time, so it's it's okay. It's a trade-off. I'm, like, I'm like that thing in Castle Freak. <laughs> I, just, I rattle my chains. <laughs> That's how you communicate now, man. You just don't know how to verbalize your commands or, or requests, rather. Pipe sometimes. <laughs> oh, that's that. Aaron's hungry again. Okay, let's let's find another stray cat to throw. <laughs> So, Aaron, what got you into horror besides uh, being a captive in uh, Mary's basement? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, what got me into horror? I think that <laughs> I was thinking about this before. It was Salem. It was the TV adaptation of Salem's Lot. Um, and it was introduced to me by my grandfather, who basically at way too young of an age said, I'm going to indoctrinate you into horror and this is how we're going to do it. <laughs> and then I didn't sleep ever again. And uh, that so that was definitely my gateway into into the genre. And I just fell in love with that little mini series. I remember being so scared and then trying to read the book and not being able to. And I was like, OK, I'm not quite ready for Stephen King. I'll try Goosebumps. And <laughs> Goosebumps was definitely within my wheelhouse at that age. I remember my grandfather getting to heaps of trouble from my grandmother at the time for, for showing me something so scary. And I was having terrible nightmares. And then I vividly remember my parents watching A Nightmare on Elm Street and I kind of snuck around and kind of peered down the hall and just listened to A Nightmare on Elm Street. And that was even worse than watching it because it was all in here. And and those combination of things, jumping from that probably to, to, yeah, to Goosebumps, and then I went straight from Goosebumps to Stephen King. That probably was that, – that was what got me into horror, I think. But I always liked the weird stuff. I always liked the weird stuff. Um, I, I liked things – yeah, I was never sit down at, in school and read The Babysitter's Club. Um, I was never that kid. I was like, no, not enough people dying. More people dying. <laughs> where, where are people chained up in the basement? Where is the <laughs> vampire scratching at the window? You know, so that's probably – those were probably my gateways. I think the uh, Glick kid knocking at the window is, you know, as, as much cheese as in that is in that original miniseries um, that that'll give you nightmares. Um, I, I, I love how quintessential the uh, how, how quintessential a writer's answer it is that even more than the visuals um, having to put your imagination to work getting the uh, audio to Nightmare on Elm Street and letting your imagination go the rest. I mean, if that didn't tell you what you would uh, be doing with the rest of your life, what did? You know what? Real quick, um, because this reminds me of an answer by Mark Steensland. I think off the top of my head, he was the only other one to to answer uh, the audio from a horror movie was really what did it first in his 
conscious mind of that's the movie that did it for me, which was Rosemary's Baby at a drive-in that he was in the back of a car. He was too young to watch it, but he was still there. Oh. And he said pretty much that's what it what did it for him. So that's that's really cool. That's awesome if, to hear that. If I ever have kids, I want to take them to you know, put them in the back seat of a car to a drive-in and expose them, even the audio, to, to movies that they should not be watching. <laughs> you know, I love the, the idea that... approach. I'm going to take the Steensland approach to parenting, which is, <laughs> is up there with, like, chicken soup for the soul in terms of, like, self-help books, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> the the and It's funny you should say about the audio, because there was actually a visual thing that was disassociated from movies or books as well. When I was a kid, so I, I'm, I was originally from a little town in Australia, and the nearest kind of decent supermarket was about, I don't know what it is in miles, but it was like 30 kilometers away. Um, so it's quite, it was quite a stretch in a straight line. Um, and I used to go with my grandparents to go and get their groceries every week. And I'd get there and they'd go into the adults and they would just leave me in the gigantic mom, mom and pop video store next door for like two hours. And I would just sit there and I was really young. And I was also, it was like, because we lived so far away, we were never allowed to rent videos from there. They, it was like geo blocks. You know what I mean? Like, sorry, you live too far away. You can't rent from here, but you can just wander around for as long as you want. It's okay, kid. And they knew me. And I used to go in with like a notebook and I would draw the, the, the VHS covers. And then oh, I would go... Nice. And then I'd go home and I would like write little comic strips and little books, uh, almost like novelizations of movies that I'd never seen based on the covers. <laughs> and <laughs> the funny thing about this is that it's so VHSy because none of the covers represented those movies very well anyway. <laughs> and when I when I was old enough to see these films, <laughs> the movies that I'd made up in my head were very different from what was actually being sold. <laughs> but that's probably the other thing as well. I remember doing that and novelizing movies that I really loved. I remember we didn't have a VHS machine, but we like like that could record off TV. But I used to have a video like an audio recorder that I would record movies and then play them back uh, through headphones and then just kind of act it out. And I don't know. It's it's. I think a lot of the creativity came from not being able to get everything whenever you wanted it. And so you hungered for it. You wanted it. You searched for it. And that's the, especially if you were a horror fan, when things were kind of like taboo, you're like, as soon as you know, you can't have it. You're like, I'm going to find a way. And if I can't find a way, I'll make it up. (laughs) Probably probably where it all came from. Your art reminds me of Stephen Gamble from uh, scary stories to read in the dark. It's, for anyone that hasn't gone to Aaron's site yet, it's AaronDries.com, and uh, we'll have that in the show notes. But it it's just so cool. It's kind of like a modern version of his artwork. And uh, I, I don't know, man. I mean, maybe that was the start of your adventures with this. Probably, probably. I don't, I don't um, draw or paint as much as I used to. When I was younger, it was all the time. It was if if I was naughty. You know, and, and my parents had to put their foot down. And some people were like, you're grounded. You know, that was fine. I was like, fine, that's okay. I get to stay inside. But if I was really naughty, they're like, we're taking away your crayons. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and sometimes I deserved it. But that's all right. It set me on the straight and narrow for the rest of my life. Um, so I'm still afraid of people taking away my crayons. <laughs> my house does yeah, work similarly to that. <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you have a go-to like a go-to threat? 
<laughs> uh, I mean, you, 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 unfortunately, it is 2020, so my go-to threat becomes the iPad. But uh, truth, truth be told, that's that's the number one threat. It usually gets the best reaction. But mm-hmm. it's the, uh, to, you know, you got to put your art stuff away that cuts the deepest. They don't always think that's going to be the worst, but as soon as you, you know, then they're then they're bored to tears, and then that, that actually becomes more of a problem for you than anything else. So that's <laughs> that's a last resort. <laughs> how how old how old are your kids? I've got an eight year old and a ten year old. All right, in 2021, when the world reaches some sort of sense of normality, if that doesn't work, you can always load them up into a car and 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 make them watch. Rosemary's Baby in a drive-in, and that's all the punishment <laughs> that you need. Or not watch it. <laughs> no, they have to lay in the back it. with but a blanket up in their heads. You're going to listen to a distressed Mia Farrow for two hours, and you're going <laughs> to learn a lesson. <laughs> and uh, Brennan's, one of his boys is actually telling about it, man, drawing that horror comic. That's so funny. Another thing to relate to Aaron. Yeah, you know, you mentioned uh, Goosebumps earlier, and they've um, they've been kind of on the Goosebumps train. Um, they, they'll get into the books and they'll back off and you know kind of go back and forth. They do the the, the movies with um, uh, Jack Black, um, and he decided uh, my older guy um, he decided he was going to write his own own um, comic based on the um, God. What's the dummy's name? Of course, yeah, Slappy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so he uh, made up his own. His, he like drew his own like comic cover, and then he sat down uh, and he decided he opened up uh, like a Google Doc. He said, "I'm gonna I'm gonna write a book." And I thought it was so cool because he is um, he's homeschooled. He's been homeschooled for the last three years, uh, and the biggest reason um, he's autistic, but he's also dyslexic, and he had such trouble making any strides in reading in in school and they would put him in the small groups but they wouldn't address the way he learned so he was they were beating him over the head with the same methods but it wasn't any more effective with two kids next to him rather than 20 kids next to him um and, and he just he got so frustrated you know he they were talking down to him um and we ended up pulling him and putting him on a dyslexic reading program. And the strides he's made in the last three years, like to see him go from, I can't do it. I hate it. It's frustrating. And I won't even try it to, I'm going to try and write my own book. It was, you know, holy shit, you know, um, really cool for me. And I got a lot, I shared a little bit of it online and got a lot of positive outreach for that and shared it with him as well. I love that. I've noticed a lot of librarians now are pushing graphic novels um, because it's almost like a, an intermediary type of reading that is not as daunting to people who find, you know, they have. And to tell you the truth, I mean, a lot of people that I know now that grew up reading graphic novels are voracious readers, so I think it's not a bad, you know, it's not a bad plan, really. You know, if it gets them to read, I say, go for it. That's a good Absolutely. idea. Absolutely, and we we had a lot of success with that too. Um, whether it was from, uh, I think he has maybe the Percy Jackson novels, like the graphic novel versions of those, mm-hmm. or even just you know uh, Shazam comics. They were really into the Shazam movie that came out a couple of years ago. Uh, and they really kind of dove into those and we found ourselves not just looking at the pictures, but reading as well. And I think we are at a point where we're, you know, 
we're starting to acknowledge that just because, you know, what you have in front of you is not 400 page of small text mm-hmm. doesn't mean that you're not reading. Um, yes. That That's there's legitimacy, there's legitimacy in, in graphic novels um, and audiobooks and basically whatever starts you on that path, uh, whatever gets the story into your ears or the information into your head, what, why is it more legitimate to take information in, in one way than, you know, a multitude of others? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And as long as you're seeing it, I think the thing is that when you like when I read, I see it in my head. I can see it yes. all, and that's that amazing, special, great thing about reading. But I see, I see, I see it in my head even when I'm reading a graphic novel as well. I think that's the active part of it that's so healthy is being able to formulate and to develop that skill because a lot of people can't. They just they only just see it, and that's completely okay too. But um, good. I'm glad to hear that things are going well on that front. That's really terrific. I appreciate that, man. Yeah. So, um, Aaron, I want to jump to your book that I finished last week, Where the Dead Go to Die. Because uh, <laughs> Brennan and I were, I think what started with, who do we get for the, we, we wanted to cut the show into seasons, give ourselves a month break, um, kind of collect ourselves and figure out what we're doing next year. And we, I thought the perfect time would be the the week of Christmas and start up like a little bit after New Year's because that, that's a crazy time for everyone. Mm. Yeah. Um. So I thought like, all right, well, let's think about like a Christmas or a, you know, winter time holiday book. So we asked on Twitter, we looked around and I, I don't know who it was, but someone said your book. And I'm so glad they did for a multitude of reasons. Uh, one being it's just a really good book. You and Mark broke me with that book, sir. You're welcome. <laughs> That's what uh, so good. I'm sorry. <laughs> Without giving away spoilers, it's because like once you, I'll just say once you introduce kids to, to scary situations, it's like all right, I'm all yours to form. I'm Clay as the reader. But um, also, uh, you and I talked about your uh, not you're not a social worker, but you kind of act as one is that correct yeah so i I, I work yeah (laughs) (laughs) this is it right now uh yeah so i i work in the community service sector um specifically in the homelessness uh uh sector but i've i've worked in aged care um nursing homes uh hospitals uh every everywhere mental primarily specializing in um in mental health recovery, alcohol and other drugs addiction, and and now focusing on homelessness, reducing homelessness in my city. So I've, uh, yeah, there there is, I guess to some degree, if you were to, if you knew that and read and pretty much anything of mine, you'd go, oh, I can see some of that because writing is like my therapy. <laughs> it's like I get home from work, I'm like, whoo, I have opinions. <laughs> Boom, down, down go the down go the fingers and it all just kind of filters through which is a happy which is a happy kind of way to self-care is really important when you're working on the front line or you're coordinating those services 2020 has been intense but also it probably is why my books are so unrelentingly bleak (laughs) it's like I should try to find a happy medium because I the thing about that book and a couple other ones is that people like oh yeah that kind of um that kind of hurt a little bit tough on the old emotions 
I'm like, that's actually good. Because some of the books that I've read that I will never forget, um, and I guess you try, you try to, you have your literary heroes, and the my literary heroes were the people who hurt me the most, and <laughs> I, 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 I want to hurt other people in that beautiful way <laughs> as well, because it's so special and unique and hard to do, and it requires um, a great deal of... of um, empathy and i guess that's what it boils down to because that's what i that's why i love and kind of stick with horror is that for me it's the most empathetic genre i can think of and that's why i love it so much uh before mary or brennan jump in just real quick do you mind telling us a quick synopsis an elevator pitch if you will of where the dead go to die look it's been a while since i've read it (laughs) (laughs) i i I co-wrote um, Where the Dead Go to Die with Mark Allen Gunnels, who is a terrific guy, such a gem. I really, really like him. And anyway, so the basic pitch is that it's a, a post-apocalyptic, life is kind of getting back to normal um, zombie mishmash novel of a novel, where in which basically people who become infected with the zombie virus can, uh, they have a long transition period, and they can be uh, stay at nursing homes, basically, where they will be able to live out the duration of their lives and then be humanely euthanized before they turn. Um, and uh, and it's it's a very political novel. It's very, it's it's like bang you over the head. We've got something to say. Um, and it's about the way we, uh, the way we care about people, about palliative care. It's about, um, uh, about dignity and about all the things that can go wrong. <laughs> um, and, and so, and it's, it's a, the story of the nurses on that ward. Uh, and basically uh, a, a new, a new mum who is there after with her own baggage, who comes to join, to work at this hospice where she's looking after these terminal people who, and so our, our zombies, we wanted to do stuff that was different. And we kind of considered the whole novel as kind of like an epilogue. Um, we, we, uh, and the reason I, I, I partnered up with Mark is that he writes a lot of zombie stuff and I've never even thought of doing it, but I met him and I was so enchanted and charmed by him. I'm like, I should write a zombie novel. No way. We should, we should do one together. And so, <laughs> and, and, um, and, and it worked out great in terms of meshing our sensibilities. Uh, but it was always kind of intended as something as like, if we were going to uh, use uh, the zombie story to, to say something, what would it be? And we just didn't see any other way than making it about the end of the end. End. and and for and for it to be uh and hopefully there's hope at the end even though it's always unremittedly bleak uh so it, it was it was a terrific book to write and it was fast we wrote it really quickly as well so yeah, it's um it's a bit of a roller coaster ride it's not too long um and it ha- it does have a a festive theme because it's set around christmas time um <laughs> Which, which is probably where, where this comes from. But, and again, you know, we, we set it at Christmas because um, we think of Christmas and we think of family and being able to get together. But this is, these are, this is on a ward where people are, sometimes people have families coming to visit them. And then there are those people who contract this virus, this disease, and are dumped at hospitals and end up in these wards to die on their own. And so these nurses become their best friends, the the family members that they never have. But that also takes a massive toll on the workers and they, they, they those boundaries start to blur and a death of one affects everyone else. And and also the way that the the virus functions in the novel is that um we call our zombies are kind of called smilers. 
And then the reason for that is that by the time you're infected with the disease to the time in which you actually pass away and become the undead, your body goes through a physical transformation that changes the way you look or your hair falls out um, or your gums recede. And so you seem to be smiling all the time and um, your your fingernails grow too long and need to be trimmed back. Um, and, and all of this is to do with you, your body trying, kind of transitioning into becoming an eating machine. And, and we wanted to, to have these people smiling all the time because it was in stark contrast. I know it sounds ridiculous to make the analogy, but when I came up with that idea, I was thinking of dolphins. Like I was actually thinking of dolphins because I remember reading something about people saying that dolphins always appear to be smiling, but yet they feel complex emotions like a human being or other animals as well. So they could be in agony. They could be uh, being carved up under a knife. They could be being attacked or pursued or grieving or falling in love, but they always look like they're smiling. And Ooh. so that was kind of what we, we kind of adopted uh, from the animal world in terms of our zombie virus and what it manifests as. So, um, yeah, it's a, that's more than just an elevator pitch. You never ask me to give you an elevator pitch because I don't know how to do that. But it's, <laughs> so, I mean, it's a beautifully horrific concept to – have written a zombie novel where you actually, you know, elicit some empathy for zo the zombies, the people that are going to become the zombies, you know, and for the people who are basically charged with taking care of people that they know they can never save. Yeah, absolutely. And, and because they've kind of got through to a place of normalcy in this new world where we accept that this happens and that you can control it and that the, the euthanizing process is done by government officials. Uh, it's done through a, like a, it's not like um, uh, it's a little bit like the firing squad in that you have a number of people who line up and they all pull the trigger at the same time. So nobody has to live with the guilt of having to be the executioner, um, except it's a little bit more twisted than that in terms of the, the implementation. It's almost a little bit medieval in regards to how they do it. It's a government unit that goes from each one of these hospices and they're called the crowners. And it has to do with a, a device that is positioned over these people's heads just before they turn. And a number of people who are authorized to turn the key that detonates it basically. Um, um, but it also, you know, this world is the, the, the infection has changed the world and it has a, uh, uh, like, for example, you're not allowed to say zombies, you know, uh, all of all zombie literature has been outlawed. Um, anything to do with the unled. So there are all of these kind of like a really uh, constrictive conservatism that has kind of swelled up to crunch down the reality around it. And these hospices have become like these dirty secrets where and, and realistically, when it comes to the way here in the West, um, in different countries, it's different, uh, but I'll speak from my own experiences that uh, nursing homes and working working in them for a long period of time, for many, became a place where people put the people that they don't want to see anymore. It's not like in other cultures, particularly uh, where the elderly will move in necessarily with, mm -hmm. with their families and you look after them, but it, there is a lot of shame there and it's very, very painful. Uh, dementia and Alzheimer's is a little bit like you lose your loved ones multiple times again, over and over and over again. And so this was all the stuff that we were writing about. Um, and But in the novel, because that these these facilities uh, are there, are government sanctioned, they, they, are, they, used, they are used as a political um, football in terms of whatever political powers that are in charge of the day. And as a result of that, there is this kind of uh, conservative swing that's happening through 
through across the world. And there, uh, with every facility, there is a, a swarm of protesters out the front, which would be kind of the equivalent of your right for lifers, you know, uh, or mm-hmm. people who are against, a, you know, a woman's choice uh, and things like that. And so really the novel boils down to being almost nothing about zombies and completely about these nurses trying to do their job mm-hmm. when they've got a crowd of people outside that are willing to 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 stop them at any cost from from taking what appears to be and uh, uh, robbing somebody of the choice over whether or not they should live or not. So it's about euthanasia. So yeah, it's um it's cheery, full of Christmas <laughs> cheer. You know that protester thing really. It's so weird. Like before, I think right before I started reading this book, we had Sonora Taylor on. And we were talking about trigger warnings and stuff. And I, I'm not, I should, you know, I said the only trigger warning I would have would be with uh, women taking the awful walk to that clinic to make that that life decision that's going to be an emotional scar forever. Because I had someone very close to my heart go through that once at a young age, and uh, I wasn't there for it. I was called after it happened, but I, I love her to death, and. Hearing how there's protesters out there wanting to kill them. So then I was reading this and I was like, I just want to kill these people. They're they're so nasty. And then you get to learn about them and they just seem like radical whatever religion you want to input there. It's it was very it was very reflective of this world, what it could be. And it it's not you made it seem like the zombie um whatever you want to call it, plague or infection could be, it could be real. Who knows? Like who was going to predict, predict all this that happened this year? It's 2020 is not over yet. It's not over yet, Aaron. And it's <laughs> almost Christmas time, buddy. Hey, <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Hey, everyone out there listening to this right now, do you know what you need after going through 2020? An apocalyptic virus zombie novel set at Christmas time <laughs> available in stores everywhere. And it's for Christmas. <laughs> Links below. <laughs> I so I think we I think I talked to both of you if you wanted to do the season finale like months and months it might have been before the whole thing on you know the I don't know the right way to word it so the plague before that started I didn't know this would be the book it's just it's weird how things work out well look the if if oh sorry Mary jump in well it's just it, it made me think of a question actually um because I think that with uh, <laughs> I've seen a lot of people joking that because this, you know, because of the way people have reacted to COVID, we kind of have to completely rethink all of our post-apocalyptic things and how people would actually act, you know. And what I've figured out is that it's it's not that people adjust to circumstances. It's that they adjust to trauma. Like, it's not that people have adjusted to the fact that there's a plague is that they've adjusted to the trauma of it. And once you adjust to trauma, you go on with your life as if nothing's wrong. I mean, they've seen that. I mean, you've, you've probably seen it in your work, right? That, yeah. that this is like a defense mechanism of human beings. And I think it's kind of, um, it, it sounds to me like that that's what the book addresses too, is that this, this idea that, um, it's not really that we've adjusted to what's happening. We've adjusted to the trauma of what's happening. And that is not always, while it's a biological necessity, it doesn't always seem like a good thing because you're not making it any safer. You're just glossing over it, you know? 
Absolutely. And look, when there's great adversary of any kind, you kind of do see a, a line in the sand, which is either self-defense and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and which is exactly what you're talking about. But you also do. And, and then you see people who absolutely crumble and that's completely normal. It should never be never. It should never be stigmatized either. But you also do see you also do see great um, uh, resiliency. And you see great strength that can emerge from 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 this and great kindness that comes with mm-hmm. this, too. And so even though my fiction in particular in this book or generally is that it can be very much leaned towards the extreme or to the, the melancholic, I'm I'm actually all about hope. Um, and in the same way that, you know, in the same way that I read, like, you know, Jack Ketchum's The Girl Next Door. And yes, it's like the most distressing and disturbing thing I've ever read. I sense great hope and empathy in that book because there is the hope that you can get through this. Mm-hmm. And whilst you may be, and whilst you may, your, your scars may toughen up and scab over, um, you, you won't forget them. He, that, that main character that won't, will never forget them, but will mm-hmm. also never allow himself to be silent again, you know? So it's a, I guess that taps into that too, but you know, trauma is is a fascinating thing to explore in the horror genre, in particular, for this exact reason. And there's no better time for us to reflect about what we're going through and what everyone else is going through than after the year that is. And mm-hmm. who knows what fiction will emerge from this time as well across in in this genre or, or many other genres as well. Like who who knows what's around the corner? <laughs> twenty twenty has told us anything can happen. <laughs> I've I've seen your work described as extreme psychological horror, which just sounds so delightful because see, I tend to I, I don't like a lot I'm I should say there's certain extreme horror tropes, if that's the right mm. thing, that cease to be entertaining and become sort of traumatizing for me. So I tend to avoid yeah. them in my entertainment. But I love the idea of extreme psychological horror (laughs) because it really Mm. i think it encompasses what you're saying about um how there's a lot of emotional um and really if you look at the political stuff a lot of intellectual components there and that seems to be true across the boards with your stuff not just with the co-written stuff but with your you know with your single author novels and novellas um and i was leading to a question and it was going to be brilliant I can't remember what it is. Maybe I just wanted to tell you how awesome the idea of extreme psychological horror sounds, though, uh, because I, I I like that idea. I think that would be so- – oh, I know what I was going to say. I know what I was going to ask. Do you find it easier or more difficult, or maybe it doesn't make a difference either way, to maintain that hope in the face of extreme horror when you're writing it? Or is it just one of – because I, I know what you mean about – Jack Ketchum about Dallas's work. There mm. is hope there because he was the kind of person who believed in other people. He yes. believed in the inherent goodness of the human race. And, you know, when I get the impression that your stuff is a lot like Dallas's in that way, you know. Yeah. Um, but I'm wondering, and I, I, I would have asked him too, I, I'm wondering, is it harder to do with extreme horror, do you think, to maintain that hope? Or do you think that that's a natural vehicle for conveying hope because here's something so horrible. Maybe the best we can hope for is that it will never happen again, that you're bringing it to light. Yeah. I think, look, I think it's both. I think it's both. Um, Otherwise, otherwise, 
I think I don't know. I, I don't know. It's probably not great from a like, you know, what am I going to write for the rest of my life thing? Because I do find it exhausting to write stuff that is emotionally upsetting. Um, but I, 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 too, am inherently hopeful uh, and look and seek for the good in others, um, because with my with my day job there, there are. I can't, I'm not allowed to be, to, to impose any judgments and not, I have to set my, my value subsets by the door and I cannot ever turn anyone away and nor should you, um, regardless of what they've done. Um, and so that is sometimes a great, but also very, very taxing thing, um, over a long period of times, writing about this stuff can be that same thing, but I think it's, I will always end up coming back to this same world because I will always remain eternally great, um, hopeful, which is probably what why um with dallas's fiction he he kept going back to that level of extremity you know what i mean mm-hmm. it's um and well look it's funny you should we, we should we should talk about dallas because i i grew up with all those influences that we spoke about before and like you know uh, king led me to dance macabre which led to you know the right. the, the checklist the of <laughs> the list of book that to me was my my gateway and that was an incredibly fundamental text um in terms of influences coming together and i knew i wanted to write i wanted to create i wanted to make movies i wanted to write screenplays but i didn't know that i was allowed to do what i wanted to do until i read jack ketchum um and so and i told dallas that and 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 he's like, well, it sounds like you got something to say. And and that to me is what it's about, is that you can you can have the skill and you can have the ability to manipulate a reader. But what's the point unless you've got something to say? And and ultimately, I guess the the parallel, regardless of the content between myself and Dallas's work is is a fundamental desire for goodness. Um, and 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 at least that's what I see in him. And that's what I would hope that I, I try to reach for, I guess, so to speak. I don't know. Is that a bit of a wishy-washy answer? It might be, maybe. No, no, no. That's, <laughs> I, I mean, that's I, – I think that's – I think that's – I would be more inclined, to be honest, to read something, even if I thought it would go outside of my comfort zone, mm. for that very reason. Because yeah, and, even yeah. even in reading, you know, just the descriptions mm-hmm. of, of your book, I, I got the impression that there was – some Dallas influence there. And one of the things that, I mean, I, I cannot read the girl next door. I know yeah. too much about it. I've seen too much, but yeah. I've read his other, I've, I've read a number of his other things. And there is that, I, I think I can get past some really gut wrenching horror because I can see that, that hope, that optimism, that there could be good in other people, which would make me more inclined to read more of your stuff for that very re- for the same reason. Yeah, so I think I, that's a good answer. It yeah, sells yeah. us on it. <laughs> uh, good, good, good. I, I also think that empathy empathy uh, doesn't mean just caring for kind people. Uh, it, it's the it's really the opposite. It's it's yes. it's the ability as a writer and a reader to be able to go. I know that uh, that the good people do bad things and that bad people do good things, and that if I'm going to go on a journey in any one of these things, the binary is just a little bit too simplistic. Mm-hmm. I, I'm looking. I, I, there are characters that I've written and that I've read in other people's work who I absolutely despise, and I know that they are awful. And yet, through the the through language, you are enticed and invited, sometimes against your will, to see the world from their from their perspective. Oh, yes. And that 
that is where the discomfort lies for me in I hope in my work, not necessarily in viscera, because to be honest, I have very, very little interest in reading extreme fiction that is not that is not interested in the soul behind the skeleton. <laughs> I have just yes. no desire to read it myself. I love that people write. I love it. I also I, I love splatterpunk, but I love splatterpunk because. It's inherently political. You know what I mean? It's really political. And and so it's um I just think you you either need to look for something to say or or also um something to reveal of yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, those those are the invitations through writing through the slightly more extreme end of the scale that I'm interested in. And that's my wheelhouse. That's why because there is also a lot of me. There's probably too much of me in my fiction. Because <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and, and I've never written anything that's not in some way or another extremely autobiographical. Um, and, and and it will continue to do so in terms of stuff that's in the pipeline as well. Um, so, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I, I can ramble on. Feel free to rein me in. <laughs> not going to have a chance, man. I've been I've been in Mary's basement for so long. You don't understand. <laughs> he just wants someone to talk to. <laughs> well, hey, good news is is I know she's in Jersey. It's probably like two hours away from me. I'll I'll go up there just for you, buddy. Thanks. I, am I in Jersey? Is that where I am? Okay, that makes so much sense. <laughs> now, when you looking, I put you in my trunk and drove you up to my parents. <laughs> now, Aaron, uh, you don't have to go through the entire list, of course. You can pick one or none if you don't want to. Uh, no. But I did talk very briefly with Mark about um, one character I really loved, Mama Metcalf. Metcalf mm. Sorry, Metcalf. And he said that's based on his mother. And I was like, I love your mom, man. Man, she's just so sweet. She's such a sweet lady. Why does why is her son such a butthead? <laughs> well, here's the thing. We so for for context, Mama Metcalf is a character in the Weather Dead Go to Die, and she is like the aging matron on the ward, and everyone loves her. And and our young protagonist, this woman, this young mum who's new onto the ward, gravitates towards her because she just naturally feels like home. And and considering the trauma that this woman has gone through, it's natural that she should go towards somebody who embodies goodness. And yet, um, again, looking at family, like the sometimes the worst people in the universe have the sweetest mothers. And it's perhaps the thing that scares me sometimes in terms of becoming a parent is that you could be a beautiful person and give birth to Damien. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a, a, a great relinquishment of ego and of, and of fear. And, and also you try to raise great children. And yet, even though she's the greatest, most kindest person ever, Mama Metcalf still raised an asshole. You know, and and we we also uh, in that in that book in particular didn't want nobody was of virtue. Uh, nobody was nobody was a signal of virtue. Everyone had something dark within them. And, you know, it was interesting as well is that w- we've had readers say to us, oh, OK, so the zombie epidemic, uh, you know, the way it's cared, the, the palliative process, all this stuff, it's all about AIDS. And I'm like, it's about anything. Um, but it also because both myself and Mark openly out gay men. We also didn't want all the gay characters in in this novel to be like heroes. 
um, if anything, the the villain of the book is this gay, this absolutely awful gay man, and that was also really, really terrific to write as well. I'm just, I'm not, I'm not necessarily interested in writing about heroes. I'm interested in people who try to do good, but mm-hmm. just because your definition of good is one thing, somebody else's is the opposite, and. Uh, you know, I just don't think it's as black and white. So even the Mama Metcalfs of the world can give birth to assholes. Well, <laughs> just one more comment about that. You, you just, I see it brought up sometimes how, how, and I'm not going to get specific because I don't even remember the exact quote, but it's like this group of people, it's always white guys. So let's just say straight white guys shouldn't write this mm-hmm. character. They're good points. I mean, a lot of times, not everyone, but there are, Typically, when it's done poorly, it's white straight dudes that are really cliche in their characters for anyone that's not a white straight dude. Um, I think they could read a book like by you, for example, by this this specific book and say, this is how you do it. This is how you do it the right way. They're, everyone's just a person. Some are assholes. Some are nice. Some are in between. So, I mean, this is I'm really making this comment for people that are maybe new writers, which is mm-hmm. why mostly say things that like you or Mary or Brennan may know, but you never know who's listening. Could be a new writer. That's like, I need some tips. Cause I often hear stuff from, from you, Mary on, uh, Brian, the heart, the horror show. When I listened, when you guys had that on, I would hear things that you would say. And I'd be like, huh, that was obvious. Never thought of it. <laughs> so that's why, that's why I always why thought that, uh, that a big part of, uh, when they say write what you know, one of the jobs that you have as a writer then is to go know more stuff. You know, absolutely. You know, absolutely. go go experience different peoples with, diff- with different viewpoints and and different ideas. And whether you agree with them or not, in the end, it, it doesn't really matter. If you can understand that people have these views and why, then you can write those kinds of characters without ending up writing cliched type people. You know, you could write a much broader spectrum of people and believable I people i couldn't agree more yeah uh, no, i think so that the, the the books the books and also the people that i meet who probably i'm like uh we're probably not going to be mates are <laughs> people who who uh i don't know how to describe it um I, I write what i write is a reflection of the actual world that i live in um, I don't just associate with white dudes. Uh, my, my partner is not white. I don't. Uh, I'm not just settled into my own little that little town that I was referring to at the beginning, 30 kilometers from the nearest supermarket. That's not me. I I'm, I, I I live to travel. Um, I also am far less interested in talking to people than I am in listening to people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I find that often just listening is the greatest tool you could ever have in terms of writing respectfully because mm-hmm. if you don't if you don't live respectfully chances are you won't write respectfully and i think right. that that kind of taps in massively into what mary says you know the world is big exciting and great and different and uh and it is there for us to explore and to learn from constantly and if you write anything definitive you're lost you know mm-hmm. what I mean? yeah i wouldn't even write definitively about myself because mm-hmm. I don't even know myself. I'm still learning and changing every day. That Wow. Absolutely. I agree 100%. That's, yeah. Uh, Brenton, take over, man. I'm just reflecting on that. That is, <laughs> that is well said. <laughs> Ruminate, sir. So what you're saying is that 
I shouldn't write every story about a uh, writer who lives in Maine. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's the thing. If that is, you know, if that's the story you're that you have to tell, that's okay. I would, and I think that's one of the things that people misunderstand. And I, I mean. I can't speak for anybody else, but for me personally, I mean, a lot of those straight white guy stories were the stories I grew up on that made me want to be a writer. Mm. I think it's just Fine. a matter of, um, you know, understanding that there's – because it's a business and you want to be commercially successful, so of course you want to be able – but if you can write a story that is from a viewpoint unlike – say the readers or unlike somebody else's and still make it relatable, then that's the commerciality of the fiction that you're looking for. I mean, that's, and and I personally, after a while, you get tired of hearing the same story over and over. It doesn't mean those stories shouldn't be told. It just means that they're so much more enjoyable, I think, in a a cornucopia, if you will, of (laughs) different viewpoints in horror. You know, I think that's what makes the genre exciting is that, Horror is such a uh, an individualistic thing and sometimes such a subjective thing that why wouldn't we want multiple viewpoints of what makes something scary, especially if it's done well enough to scare us, even about situations that we can't maybe superficially relate to, you know? Well, that. That's why cosmic horror is so is so exciting. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's the, that, you know what I mean? Like, yes. And, and why, <laughs> yes. I think that that's a really great, uh, again, look below, link below to Mary's work. <laughs> it's, woohoo, you know, it's, uh, it, that, that's, I, I remember somebody talking uh, about, um, and it probably was some guy who lives in Maine, uh, who, who was talking about in terms of like, um, science fiction or fantasy but being far more interested in the the, the blue collar plumber on the spaceship mm-hmm. who is the cipher through which we see the end of the world and i think that it's about that relatability that opens doorways and mm-hmm. and but not all doorways are square and that's and that's i think just the difference and that's the perspective that enriches my library that's mm-hmm. all it boils down to and for me the um you can be the straight white guy and still be curious, and there's still something for me to find in your work. It's curiosity in in, in our neighbours and in ourselves that mm-hmm. is really attractive as well, too. Yeah. It's like the Shire. They only have circular doors, I think, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My my New Zealand brethren. <laughs> All those circular doors. I rewatched. I re- I recently rewatched the entire, like, uh, Peter Jackson. Was it the uh, 4K movie? one? Uh, I haven't got the 4K, but I probably will, <laughs> and I'll watch it next oh. Christmas. <laughs> Maybe it's it was just really fun, <laughs> super fun. I also bawled my eyes out. Uh, I just love Samwise. I think Samwise is just like the bomb. He's a real hero. He's a real hero yeah, he when he really picks is. up. Absolutely. Seriously, without him, without oh. him, Frodo's Frodo will die to Shelob or the Oryx. Or there's so many times Frodo was just a mess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. When he picks up, he's like, "I can't carry the ring, but I can carry you." I lose it every time. <laughs> I just absolutely, I'm like, <laughs> "I want to be Sam. I need a Sam. Where's my Sam?" It's just so great. It's beautiful, and the the book is terrific. It's been years, and I really want to dive back into it. I think um, that maybe, was yeah. 
Lord of the Rings for me, and I'd love to hear you guys' answer for the films. Um, so when I was like nine or ten, that's when they reissued Star Wars in the theaters with some new upgraded visuals or whatever. Uh, and when Lord of the Rings came out, it was 2000, 2001, I was preteen slash young teenager that I fell in love with it. As soon as I saw the first trailer, I loved it. I've watched it so many times, like I'm sure you guys have, but I'm curious what your favorite characters are. You can pick novel or movie, but for I just want to throw this out there. For me, Gandalf, the gray or white, is the coolest badass ever made. I, I have often argued with Harry Potter fans that <laughs> Gandalf is the wizard. Okay, <laughs> he is the cool wizard. I'm fist pumping you. <laughs> and uh, Arwen, Aragorn, you know, I even Boromir. Sean Bean's character was kind of a dick, but <laughs> I, well, I love Sean Bean in everything he's in, even though they keep killing him off. <laughs> but, <laughs> Game of Thrones, he had it worse, I think. (laughs) (laughs) They, you know, they actually have memes online about trying to find movies that Sean Bean is not killed off in. (laughs) (laughs) So would Gandalf be your answer too, Mary? Well, I'd say Gandalf. Well, probably Gandalf in the book, definitely Gandalf and 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 Legolas. I have, I, I'm a sucker for the elves. I always said they're my people. I, I'm, I'm all for the elves. Um, and, and Legolas is just adorable. Uh, and Arwen, you know, cause I feel like, you know, girl power, go us. And, and Aragorn, because I think Aragorn, I think Aragorn is the kind of, he's the kind of guy that, <laughs> well, that like girls like me are always into, but, um, <laughs> but there's, there's something, <laughs> there's something to be said about a guy who basically gives up everything cause he thinks he's just not good enough to do it. And and yet every, you know, every opportunity proves that he is and just doesn't see it. It's like it, it is like the ultimate, like, frustration of those kinds of guys. It's like, no, you're really a good person. and It's OK. But yeah. I, one of the things I liked about the movies, aside from the fact that they're absolutely beautiful to mm-hmm. look at, is that and, and this, I, the, it, it, it had come up recently in, in a class I was teaching about fantasy, how when you have this epic sweeping thing with a cast of like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of characters, how you keep them all straight. And I mean, Tolkien's basic, you know, idea was that he grouped them into races, you know, different kinds of you know species on this planet that had their own cultures and their own language and their own their own you know, quirks about other cultures and languages and, mm-hmm. and, um, and that they basically, you learn about the world he created through the hobbits. Cause everyone pretty much forgot that hobbits existed. So they've been isolated for, you know, however thousands of years. And, and now they're seeing the world the way the readers are seeing it, you know? And I think that's something, I mean, I, I fantasy was my first love before horror so I'm always impressed by fantasy novels mm. that can, you know, grip the heart and the mind the way Lord of the Rings does. And mm. I know this is probably blasphemy, but because there are like chapters of just riding through the woods and because Tom Bombadil exists in this universe. Yes. I, I tend to think the movies are the best of what those books had. But <laughs> those books are good, too. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
this greatest Tom, this Tom Bombadil shaming shall not stand. <laughs> <laughs> there's a bit of, there's a bit of Bombadil pass. in us all. It shall not pass. There's Bombadil in us all. <laughs> there is a little. <laughs> oh, Mention Arwen, right? Liv Tyler. Mm-hmm. I um. <laughs> so Steve Tyler is from uh, Massachusetts. His daughter went to I forget the college, but. My friend used to live at the college that she would jog by, and he said, it's a quick story. There's no good ending, but basically he said every time, every day I saw her jog by, I'd just be like mesmerized. Not necessarily checking out her because she's beautiful, but like it's Liv Tyler. It's Steve, Steve Tyler's like one of the coolest rock and rollers ever. <laughs> he said I never did it, but man, I was in awe. I'm like, yeah, well, Arwen, so, you, you yeah. know. Yeah. Imagine, imagine seeing a elf in real life. What, what do you even say to it? <laughs> hey. <laughs> I'm just waffling. Who's your favorite character? Tom Bombadil? <laughs> Me. <laughs> oh God. No, I like him for furry and squat. I'm I'm all about the hobbits. Uh, I love I love Sam. I love Pippin. I love breakfast. I love multiple breakfasts. I think I'm all I'm a hobbit. Tip. I'm I'm team hobbit all the way, all the way. Nice. The whole entourage. The entourage of um, I want spinoffs. I want like TV spinoffs where we've just got established IPs but with hobbits. I want I want <laughs> Sex in the Shire. I want I want I want the Hobbit Files. You know I want. <laughs> I want <laughs> Aaron, you heard it here first. Aaron wants hairy footed sex in uh, little hills. Can you not see Pippin, Pippin, and them all sitting around the table just going, oh, this, this, it's 11, this whole, it's 11, it's 11, it's <laughs> <laughs> You almost wonder if there's like, if there's a market for that, you know, the way that uh, so many properties are, are going now where I'm like, I'm thinking Marvel, I'm thinking Star Wars, where they have the movies, but then they have spinoff shows on this streaming service. Like if it hit at the right time, would we have epic Lord of the Rings movies? But then maybe some streaming service says, you know what? We are going to have like a fake reality show set in the shy. We are. We want to see what those hobbitses are up to. I know um, <laughs> she's the perfect author for that. That'd be Jeff Strand. Oh, yes. yes. Jeff Strand. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Hobbit game shows. That would be Jeff Strand all the way. Oh, my gosh. I love that. And, you know, like, the, you know that really awful neighbor in the Shire who's always scowling at them? Yeah, the you, at the, one? yeah. Yeah, yeah, really good character to have on the reality TV show. All the the backstabbing, the gossips, things like yep. that. Someone slept with his wife. It's oh, I can see it now. I can see it now. How the Real Housewives of the Shire. Wait, how do you know he's gonna have a husband, Aaron? <laughs> That's exactly right. Something so gender gender binary. Brendan, who's your favorite character? Yeah, you know, real quick, I Aaron, I was gonna say, you know, it really says something that. Tom Bombadil didn't even make the like four and a half hour version of the <laughs> Fellowship of the Ring. But, you know, I'm not I'm not actually sure it does say anything because neither did the scouring of the Shire make the, you know, 10 hour cut of the last movie. Uh, right. And if that didn't make it, then I mean. They were good. They were definitely good, but I would have loved to have seen that worked in in some way, shape or form. Look, I, Peter Jackson gets a total pass in my book for life. Only, not only just for Lord of the Rings, but Heavenly Creatures. Are you all Heavenly Creatures fans? 
Do you, have you ever seen Heavenly Creatures? Seen All right, so you must see Heavenly Creatures. That was the film that he made before The Frighteners, and it was the film that bridged. That, yeah, it was the film that bridged him and his low budget horror roots and shifting towards the big Hollywood machine. And it was a true story set in New Zealand, and it was Kate Winslet's first film. And it's about these based on a true crime, and it's about these two young girls who develop a romantic relationship and plot a murder and it is and their escapist fantasies to reconcile their guilt is this fantasy world and it is terrific it is a gorgeous disturbing beautiful film and i think it was like 1994 95 uh definitely check it out it's a terrific film. when you watch you go ah oh, this guy could make lord of the rings uh, <laughs> yeah we, we, I, mean, that, I was won over by by uh frighteners and what was Oh my god, I can't believe I can't think of this the the, the zombie movie that he made. Uh, Dead Alive. Dead Alive, yes, thank Dead you. Alive. So yeah, yep. we had S.A. Cosby on last week, and he mentioned Dead Alive and uh, Frighteners. So I mean, it's I haven't seen the Frighteners, and now I got yeah, what is it? Heavenly something. Heavenly, Heavenly creatures. creatures. Heavenly creatures. It's definitely worth checking out. I love that in two consecutive episodes you've got a you've got frighteners references. This is saying <laughs> this says more about you two than it does about your guests, I guarantee. <laughs> well, you volunteered to come on. <laughs> oh. Well, damn it, Aaron, I had a question, buddy. I can't think of it. Oh <laughs> uh, look. Tangents is where we find truths. That's that's. <laughs> you, Wait, we never you got just, Brennan's answer. Who's your no, favorite? and I, I was just thinking we haven't talked about the Lord of the Rings for long enough when we are not to talk about his work. But uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I gotta go with Sam. Obviously, that's just such a that, that's a, a layup there. I love Marion Pippin. You know, I, I like I like the Hobbits, but I really gotta go with Marion Pippin. They're a lot of fun, and I don't think I heard anyone throw out uh, Eowyn. Um, yeah. Especially that that bit from the last movie, I am no I am no man. Mm, yeah, terrific. Uh, I'm excited now. All right, I'm gonna get that 4K. I'm gonna get the whole new editions. I just bought them. I'm gonna get them again. Christmas Day in the Shire. We're gonna rewind the part where she jams a sword down the Witch King's face, and he just shrivels into nothingness. It's wonderful. Spoilers for a movie that came out 17 years ago, by like the way. Reason. Uh, Brent, why don't you ask Aaron about the other book, my friend? Sure. Oh, um, so, Aaron, um, let's talk about A Place for Sinners a little bit. Will you give <laughs> us the uh, really long elevator ride pitch? All right. So, is everyone seated? <laughs> seated? <laughs> like, um, all right. So, A Place for Sinners is about a bunch of international tourists who converge on a tiny little island in Thailand. And uh, it goes from being a completely and relatable domestic drama through to a Hieronymus Bosch painting come to life. Uh, <laughs> and, it, it, and it is a combination of psychological thriller, uh, a creature feature, and... Um, and travelogue. I don't know how to describe it other than that, but it's uh, yeah. I, I started writing it. I went to Thailand, and I I was I and I was a tourist, right? Um, it actually I'll, I'll divert by coming back to to Dallas again. There was a re- oh gosh, what was the book? I think it was called Roadkill. Was it called Roadkill? I've got it on my shit shelf over there. Um, and anyway, there's a line in it where you where have a it, shit shelf. 
Uh, you know, <laughs> just <laughs> a shelf of pride. A shelf of pride. <laughs> but there's there's a line in it that I think it's like every step we take, uh, like it results in the destruction of something like that we we didn't know about. And, and it's referring to a car. It's describing a car driving along a highway and all the bugs that are hitting the windshield. And that's the way I kind of felt when I was going through Thailand and I was there for a number of months where I realized I was there and I was saying yes to everything. I'll try this. I'll go to this thing. And I didn't realize that I was perhaps perhaps buying into a tourist trade that was not good for the people who lived there. Um, and, uh, you know, the blind naivety of, of, of tourism where we think we're doing the right thing, but we're not being ethical. Like we, we will go, we'll go ride elephants and, and not realize that those elephants may be, um, had been stolen from their families and and uh, are mistreated, um, and so it's it was it's a book about that in part as well, and it's all of these different people from around the world converging on this little island where everything goes wrong and it's a perfect storm, uh, and uh, the actual island itself is is fictionalized, but uh, at this island basically you can go it's 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 based on something that I did. And as soon as I got there, I realized I'd made a terrible error and I felt incredibly uncomfortable. And the the book was formed in my head almost like straight away, which was I went to an island uh, where you could go and where they had filmed the Leonardo DiCaprio film, The Beach. And there you can feed the monkeys. That's what it said. So you get on a boat at dawn and you just trek off into the wilderness across the oceans and you rock up at this beach at dawn and anyway you get there and you you're getting close to the water and the the guys um who are running the boat they open up these big cooler bags full of bananas and 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 lollipops and sweets and candies and and bottles of coke and soft drink and soda and things like that and they're like and i'm like what what is what's all this stuff for and they're like oh that's for the monkeys that's all they live off and so basically these creatures and you you dock on the sand and this wall of jungle starts to writhe and all of these feral sugar high animals come out of the jungle en masse and, and run at you. And you have to give these wild animals that are riddled with diseases um, uh, and cannot fend for themselves nor nor hunt or anything anymore. Every morning at dawn, they receive their sugars uh, from tourists. And if you don't hand over <laughs> what's in those cooler bags, they will bite you and they will attack you. I watched uh, a mother kind of push her little child towards a monkey that was like literally with these little fingers taking the lid off a, a, like a bottle of Coke and drinking it like a human being. Um, a, a, she was uh, pushing a child there to get a photo and the, and it got too close and this monkey just bit this like eight-year-old kid on the neck. It oh. was awful. And I and in that moment, I realized, oh gosh, I, I'm, I'm a part of this machine that is destroying this country. And, and, and largely that's what a place for sinners kind of birthed from. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's, it's it's an again another another cheery cheery read full of happy people <laughs> and funny turns of circumstance. <laughs> no, I I definitely wanted to ask you if because uh, I I know you're big into traveling and I think I read in the I think you put in the author's note that uh, part of the book was based on your trip to Thailand. 
Um, so I wanted to ask if you'd been to Monkey Island, but I also needed to ask if you had a poor experience in a hotel room during any of your travels that somehow made it into the book. Maybe. <laughs> uh, except if, are you referring are you referring to bed bugs? I am referring to bed bugs. Right. <laughs> yes. Yes. All right. So I got a serious case of bed bugs, not in Thailand. I got bed bugs in, at Disneyland in Florida. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> the hottest day of the year. Checked into this cheap as cheapest hotel we could find. And when I say it was an infestation, I mean, it. the bites were covering our bodies. Hundreds upon hundreds of bites. Ugh. Welts. And and the awful sensation of um of not being able to get rid of them and also that like you know that our arms were welted up and it was the middle of summer and we had to wear long sleeve clothes oh. going to Disneyland and riding and riding the teacups and like touching this like oh 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 it was oh. just this awfully discomforting thing and I thought to myself if I survive this I'll write about it one day so. <laughs> I, I, that's yes, that that actually did happen to to me. <laughs> You're and from Australia young... too. I mean, the, the the bad stuff is supposed to get you there and leave you alone everywhere else. <laughs> that's yeah, not fair. I, I, th- I thought if I get off this off this <laughs> giant <laughs> island, I would be safe. But no, <laughs> everywhere is fucked. <laughs> so. <laughs> So you're originally from Australia, unlike uh, Mr. Alan Baxter and uh, who's the other one, Andy Cole. Yep, I am. I am born and raised here. <laughs> born, raised here, and unable to escape, except in New Jersey. Except in New Jersey, apparently. This is true. <laughs> you you want to know the meaning of not being able to escape? <laughs> <laughs> that is a quality padlock. Yeah. Yeah. But look, yeah, no, a lot of that stuff is is real, and then there is, of course, elements that are completely, uh, thank goodness, have never ever happened to me because that is a a particularly uh, gruesome and 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 really, it's designed to to upset and to provoke thought. Um, it's very surreal. Um, it's a very cerebral read. Um, there are moments where I don't want you to know what's real and what's not, and uh, it's a. Uh, yeah, it's it's a bit on the brutal side in ter- uh, in terms of that particular read. Well, if it's a compliment, a there were moments where I didn't know what was real and what was not. So, I Good, if that's yeah. what you were going for, you pulled it off. Yeah, there was I you know, I I, I love ambiguity and and I feel as though sometimes when you're writing uh it's so funny. The idea people talk to me they're like that's just a pretty pretty full-on book. Um and I'm like, I actually think it's kind of funny, <laughs> but uh, but it also kind of touching in certain aspects. But for me, um, it's a thing. If you're going to write kind of big, bold, and 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 crazy, sometimes you lose ambiguity along the way. And for me, I really wanted to write that. I wanted I wanted everything to be to to, to toe that line. And I really was influenced by art when I was kind of writing that book. I remember going through pages and looking at like I was saying, Hieronymus Bosch was a big one. And I'm like, how how on earth? And I looked at these paintings where you can see all these little creatures like eating one another, having sex with one another, um, feeding off one another, splitting open their stomachs in, waiting for biblical cosmic gods to come down and to save them or at least to put them out of their misery. And I'm like, how do I, how do I write that and make it seem like something that could actually happen? 
and and that's that was my aim but again at, in the exact same way when we're talking about the prior book i'm just not interested in gore i'm just i have no interest in it i'm only interested in the individual people um and their stories and their backgrounds and what makes them wonderful flawed human beings because here's the thing you can rip open the splatter but if you feel nothing then mm-hmm. it's just not my not my cup of tea that's that's the way i kind of put it doesn't mean it's not without value. It's just not my cup of tea. Right. I agree. And I got bed bugs. <laughs> <laughs> and it was as bad as I describe it in the book. Because <laughs> you're also you're also far away from home. Yeah. You and you um, uh, accessing medical you know support is very different when you're traveling and you've got mm-hmm. like insurance claims that you need to get. And uh, it it certainly doesn't deter me. I've been in situations when it comes to travel and I've done a lot. Like I don't have children. But for me, my, my expressions of creativity, influence, and, and the way I learn is through travel, meeting people, and, and creative stuff. So for me, it's an incredibly important part of my life. And to go through 2020 without being able to go overseas and see people that I know and love and to also go to crazy places, um, it does. It, that's where the isolation crunch does kind of kick in. Mm. But um, I've, I've been in some pretty dicey hairy situations when it comes to my international travel exploits and uh as dangerous and sometimes upsetting as some of those acute kind of uh, situations were um i'll never stop i'll never stop until they don't let me (laughs) (laughs) good the the mind of a writer man always goes uh, well like you said if i'll if i survive this i'll write about it (laughs) yeah that's right that's right oh god like someone today asked me about like where I work, we saw our treatment plant in Atlantic City. And I was like, the things you see and smell under the, you know, where people normally don't walk, it is ripe for the picking for a writer of horror. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm sure you all feel the same way when it comes to the stuff that you read and the stuff that we write about as well as that. There is a story everywhere. There's a story behind every door. And and my my first novel, House of Size, was literally stemmed from that type of stuff, wondering what on earth happened behind that door. Um, and apologies to, to yourselves or anyone who may be listening who has heard this story before. But I used to, when I was going through university, I was paying my bills by being a pizza boy. Um, and I was delivering pizzas all around town. And anyway, there was this one lady and she had two kids and they were on this property. And I used to deliver pizzas to them every Friday night <laughs> without with they were just and they became this kind of background constant figures in my life on the periphery that uh, they knew me. I knew them every Friday. They got vegetarian pizzas. And that was always kind of fun, like a, a little insight when I was thinking like, you know, it's a treat, but it's also slightly trying to be health conscious and things like that. And then all of a sudden the the, um, the delivery stopped. She killed her children and shot herself. <gasps> and and I remember thinking Ooh. it rattled and rippled through me. It rippled through me. And I could not reconcile what had happened and what I was seeing in the headlines and what I saw at the doorway every day for a few years. And it was that... Um, that need to kind of seek the therapy in my mind to 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 process and move this on that led to my first novel, which was House of Size. So there is a story everywhere, and sometimes it's to purge something, and sometimes it's to invite something in, which is kind of comes back to curiosity again, right? Mm-hmm. The, the 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 storytellers that I find most interesting to read are the people who are the most curious to learn about other people in the real world. Mm-hmm. You know, so. 
it, there's a story everywhere. There's a story everywhere. Uh, okay, I'm still in shock. I'm, I think Mary and Brennan are too. That's fucking crazy. So just to get this straight in my head, I got to talk it out loud. You see this family, they seem like a nice family. Then they just, hmm. That and yeah. you based house of size, house of size, si- si- I can't talk. House of sizes is, is based specifically on those series of events. It, it's definitely not based on those events. It's based. It's very much. Um, it has nothing to do with the, that that actual event itself. But it had, but it has everything to do with the way it made me feel, mm. and it and it and it it has everything to do with my desire uh, to want to know why. And it has everything to do with the fact that I had to let it go because you just will never know. And and because you, when you look at what inspired that story and what the book is about, the book is literally about a bus driver at the end of her tether who kidnaps all of her passengers at gunpoint and takes them ho- home to become her new family. And uh, and it's told from the perspective of the passengers who are doing going through all those emotions that I wanted to do, only less stressful. <laughs> um, right. And, uh, yeah, and uh, them trying to understand why, how, and what led to this person yeah. being at that point in their life. And also having to realize that if I stop to try to process and understand this, I will either – um, it, it's it's a trap. I, I must survive and look after myself first. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's – yeah. But, yeah, and here's an interesting little twist to that story. Um, and it kind of loops back around to your initial question, which is uh, what, what got you into horror, which is about my grandfather mm. who passed away many years ago. Um, uh, I went back to my hometown a couple of years ago and I, and I took my grandmother, who was still alive, out to his grave to lay some flowers on Christmas Day. And anyway, we were sitting there and I, and I kind of like helped and I sat with my nan for a bit. And, and then I got up and I just went for a walk around and the, the headstone – that backs onto my grandfather's headstone is that woman. Really? Whoa. Yeah. Holy yeah. shit. Yeah, Wait, how, yeah. Hmm. Did okay, I had so no idea. did it, I had no idea. I'm just curious if they passed around the same time. Otherwise, how else would that have uh, That's it, still it creepy. <laughs> That's, it would have it would have been around about the same time. It would have been around the same time. And I hope this isn't an insensitive question, but not are all. her children buried near her? Yeah, they were. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they were buried near her, which I which is in and of itself a so peculiar, so right. peculiar. Right. Yeah. 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 This is a why? Why would that be? You know, what 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 um, who was there? No one else. Like it's it you know when you think of uh, like tragedies that happen in families and the parents may pass and children are passed on to other family members mm-hmm. even even in death is there nowhere else do you know what I mean right that's what I would find especially I mean if I were a surviving family member it's almost like no you know you had yeah. your chance you don't get to be near them now you know yeah yeah but I, one of the things about those kinds of stories that um. Because I think one of the reasons I'm not more popular at parties is because I have this fascination for true crime and and for the the forensic psychology that goes behind understanding people that commit these you know mm-hmm. these violent crimes and in almost every respect they say that the most frustrating thing is that you can ask them point blank and they could be as honest with you as they are humanly capable of but they will never be able to give you a reason why 
that justifies it or even makes any sense. I mean, they may have had in their own internal logic, you know, a reason, but it will never be a good one. It'll never be good enough to justify what they, what they did. And that is, we have to accept that. Mm-hmm. We have we have to let it go, and because it, it doesn't matter if we're looking at somebody who did something awful, or if something awful has happened to us, mm-hmm. the first thing the first thing we'll ask whether it's some somebody or if it's the cosmic elders coming down, we will ask, why me? Why, why me? this? Why? And we can't answer that either. No. The only <laughs> thing you can really hope to do is maybe prevent it from happening in the future to someone else. Maybe. Correct. Correct. So that is uh, that is probably at the core of all my novels and that's what excites me about the genre and about the stuff that mm-hmm. i love to read as well well you're very good at it man uh mary about the true crime thing i you know what the more people i talk to the more i think that it's one of those kind of not even a dirty secret anymore like my wife says she's in like horror she's probably never going to read much of any of my stuff because that's just not her thing that's fine because i mainly write horror like y'all and uh she likes true crime. Brennan's mm-hmm. Brennan's wife is the same way. My mother's um, the same way. She can't read my my books, but she can watch like mm-hmm. any kind of forensic autopsy, whatever thing going on there, and it doesn't it doesn't phase her. But it, there's I think the reason is because most true crime starts at the end, and then basically unravels how justice is served. At least in those true crime shows, it's like here a horrible thing happened. Now we're going to tell you how we figured out. How, who who did it and why it happened, and then that person is caught in the end. In horror, it's it's really the the horror of it is that it happened, you know, and that mm. and that people still have to go on after that, you know. And yeah. I and I but I but I did. I mean, the re, one of the reasons I got into true crime in the first place is like Aaron said, I wanted to understand why. And what I've come to realize is that you can't understand why. You can understand how. And maybe better protect yourself against it and protect your loved ones against it. But you, you're really never going to understand why because they don't understand why. You know, what? I, to add to that comment, um, my wife's a social worker and um, she does, she's worked with a variety of people from veterans to children in really not OK situations to women's shelters where they're victims of uh, domestic abuse Um and so I completely understand. I've been with her for uh, since 2012, no, 2013. So I, I understand from hearing it, not from the first person perspective, but as close to it as you can be with you, Aaron, about the um, how it takes a toll on you. I get it. Mm. I hear mm-hmm. a lot of stories from her. That's literally the one thing I promised her I'll never write about is her stories because they're her stories. She's the only person that gets away with that. But, <laughs> um Mm. The stories are awful. They're horrible. There's a lot of people uh, that aren't treated right because of one thing could be that they are sex workers. Cops don't really, not all, but certain ones in certain areas that she's worked at, they aren't very, they don't care. It doesn't matter. She had this coming because she's a sex worker. That's their words, not mine. It's it's yep. it's awful. Um and back to what I was going to say with what Mary said, again, on the horror show, you mentioned something that just hit me. And it's something that my wife said, too. And I want to write crime as well. So I'm like, I'm listening to you guys, you, my wife, other people that have very 
uh, articulate and intelligent things to say about this is that um, horror, bad horror is poorly written in the sense where it's like if you have schizophrenia, you are an extreme case of this or that. It's mm-hmm. the it's it's the ugly side of saying if you have mental health issues, you're the extreme situation and that's why you're doing this. That's not. I used to love that stuff before I realized mm-hmm. before I met my wife before I heard people like you. Now I'm listening and I'm going. I I want to I I want to see the behind the scenes. I want to see the gears turning. And one more thing is uh you know about um the why I got angry with certain things not at my wife but situations that she was put in because of her job and um i said why the fuck would they do this why would they act like this so on and so forth and she said here's the thing you're thinking about it in your logic that's not their logic mm-hmm. and that's all she had to sure. say and you just said that they don't even know why like yeah but there is there is an internal logic even even to people who are insane and you know like like clinically even dangerously insane there is Mm. an internal logic there but i'm not sure that they are always self-aware enough to understand why why kill you know Mm. they can give you sort of a superficial reason like well it makes me feel good right or i did it because um i was afraid or a lot of times they make something up that makes them feel better to use as an excuse, you know, but it's, it's never going to be a why that makes the victim's families feel better. You know, there's a really, um, terrific, uh, book called who killed my daughter by Lois Duncan. And now Lois Duncan was a, was primarily known as a writer of teen horror fiction. Mm -hmm. She, Mm -hmm. she wrote, she wrote, I know what you did last summer. Um, Mm -hmm. Strange Without a Face, she was incredibly popular through, like, the late 1970s all the way through. And anyway, um, she – her daughter was actually murdered. And that oh, wow. that book is essentially started off as her diary entries to get her through it and ended up being the uh, Lois Duncan chucking on her detective hat, saying nobody can tell me why, how, or who did it and is in, who cares enough and is going on a journey to try to figure it out. But what emerges from it? is that is this incredibly heartbreaking realization as a reader um, where you're watching this really beautiful person dig herself into a hole that she has no hope of getting out of. Mm. And you, it becomes less about the crime itself and more about what grief can do. And to the best of my knowledge, Lois Duncan never got over it. And there was never oh, the goodness. answer. And and that book where she tries to, she searches She's breaking into places. I'm like, and you're just thinking to yourself, oh, my gosh, somebody please help Lois Duncan right now. <laughs> help this woman. Because also you could see that it, it just it was it was thwarting her sense of right and wrong. And she had no possibly no objectivity um, mm. when writing that book. But when you look at it as something that's 20, uh, 20 years after the fact, it's this um, it's it's the, the toll of the why come to life. Mm-hmm. And it's a very, it's a tough read, but it's an incredible, incredible book. Um, if if anyone feels like again another cheery read for Christmas, <laughs> why did it? Why, uh, who killed my daughter? Oh, it's powerful stuff. I just wrote that down. I've never heard of that book before. So. It's it's um it's I think it's a little book that time has forgotten, which is weird because Lois Duncan's actual teen fiction is still in print after all these oh, years. Yeah. 
She's a gem. I love reading her right. stuff. I, love. I, she's, I think, one of the first, now that I think about it, without realizing it, she's probably one of the first horror writers I ever read. Because yep. as a teen, you know, as, as a, probably a preteen, maybe even younger, I remember reading a lot of Lois Duncan stuff and being like, wow, this is pretty dark for kids. But Yeah. But yeah. it is. I mean, it's there's a, a and, and a number of things have been made into movies. Yes. That she's yeah. written. Killing, she, did, she did a terrific book called Killing Mr. Griffin. Yes. Uh, oh, is, my God. That was so <laughs> Yeah. Read, yes. <laughs> oh my gosh i read that when i was really young and i was like holy crap right? <laughs> really great I YA. i almost forgot about that book wow Terrific i think that was stuff. one they did a movie for but they changed the teacher's name um what mrs tingle maybe they changed it um, to mrs tingle yeah <laughs> but that no that was a hell of a book i remember that one yeah 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 uh, you're thinking of teaching Mrs. Tingle starring uh, Helen Mirren. Play by Tom Bombadil. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, Summer of Fear was really good. They made that into a movie with Linda Blair. That was mm-hmm. directed by Wes, Wes Craven for television in, like, 1978 or something like that. This is my, my film nerd hat kicks in. I can't remember <laughs> what I... I can't remember what I ate for breakfast, but I remember obscure, like, Wes Craven television <laughs> movies from the 1970s starring Linda Blair. Have you guys watched a show called Friday the 13th has nothing to do with Jason Voorhees? Yes. yes. Yeah, Sean Cosby brought that up last week, and I've never heard of it, but it looks oh, so, yeah. so interesting. I uh, watched look- it religiously, that and Forever Night. Forever Night. I never... I never watched Forever Night, but it's it's. I remember it from VHS days. It was always in the store. <laughs> it was like, and they had like five episodes per thing. They had that, and they had Freddy's Nightmares, and they always had like the the nineteen eighties uh, Twilight Zone compilation tapes as well. <laughs> this is all coming back to me. It's all coming back to me. What a roller coaster ride we've been on on this on this podcast <laughs> in terms of content. We've gone from t- Tom Bombadil to, to True Crime to to Forever Night. Welcome to my brain, sir. Strap on. Strap, strap in and then not strap on. That's a, look, exactly. That's a, a different podcast altogether. <laughs> At which point Mary's supposed to say giggity. She didn't. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh. I'm sorry. I just you. There, uh, <laughs> at this rate, there could be plenty more opportunities to go. Look, <laughs> uh, and Patrick, I did want to say that, look, uh, as somebody out in the field... All the best to to your wife or partner. Sorry. Oh, Who's she's my wife. Yeah, really your wife. Like, All the best to your wife. It's thanks. a hard line of work, and and it's it's interesting in terms of being able to do it. You have to build up a wall. You have to be able to compartmentalize, and you have to. Do all of those things, but that stuff isn't easy. It can become second nature, but also the wall can become an issue as well over time. Her <laughs> father said, "I'm her biggest project." <laughs> That's love. That's love. <laughs> I have a good relationship with him. Yeah, uh, I saw. So Lake City, if you've been there, uh, you know there's uh, lots of weird things that happen there. It's basically you see. I saw a guy. Um, just walking around in a Johnny, uh, you know, a hospital mm-hmm. gown, and uh, told my wife, she's like, all right, and they listed off a bunch of other things, and uh, she goes, Pat, my old job, I used to see people OD literally every day. I'm like, all right, enough said. <laughs> so, yeah, totally. Yeah. I um, I I wrote a novella, uh, a, a, like, well, I guess a technically novelette, 
who knows? Work counts. It was short. Um, uh, it, and uh, it was called Damage Incorporated, and it was published in Shop Totem, and it's the, the lead story in an upcoming uh, short story collection that's coming out in 2022. And um, it's called Damage Incorporated, and it's literally probably, again, the most autobiographical thing I've ever written. It's all about that kind of ability to compartmentalize things working as a frontline social worker, uh, in which, but it's it's literally probably reflective of where I was about a year and a half ago when I was at a point where what barrier that I put up between what I had to do and how to do it, considering the very vulnerable people I was working with was starting to break as a result of burnout. And uh, their trauma was definitely seeping through and I was absorbing some of that vicarious trauma and it was having a massive effect on my ability to sleep, function and ultimately be fit to do my job. And so I realized I needed to shift away from the front line for a little bit. But that was the kind of where I was at. But the the story itself that it grew into was Damage Incorporated. And, it, and it's about um, social workers who are sent into people's homes in costumes to act out dead people so that family members have an opportunity to say goodbye to their loved ones that they never got in real life. Ooh. And about the woman who goes in and does it a little too well and the family don't let her leave. Um, and so that um, was all about how identity blurs um, when when you when you have to give of yourself professionally and what's left behind when you get home uh, it's funny my, my partner jokes to me sometimes where like we'll go out for dinner and you know somebody they'll bring bread they'll bring our drinks out to the table and they didn't bring the bread and I'm like oh they didn't bring the bed and he's like just just ask them I'm like I don't want to hurt their feelings <laughs> and he's like Aaron, you know what you do for a job? You know, you do the shit that the shit you've seen and you're afraid to ask for bread. You know what I mean? And I'm like, and I guess it's a case of our resiliency is a jug. And in at that time in my life, and it's certainly reflective in that story, I tipped too much and I'd left nothing for me. And and that's something for people who are working at the front lines, and especially in 2020, that you need to make sure that it's 50-50 uh, all the time. So uh, hats off to your wife because it takes a certain it takes a certain type of person to be able to figure out the balance and to be able to to to, and often have a sense of humor about it too (laughs) you know i honestly sometimes when i hear you and brian talk to each other mary i feel similar (laughs) with me and my wife because and and i'm saying very much so that i feel like i'm like a younger version of brian in some regard where we're both lunatic Irishmen, and if we didn't have our strong women with us, we'd probably be dead from too much drinking and being an idiot. <laughs> and I love, I love you and Brian, so I don't mean that in any yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, but um, she, thank you, Aaron. Uh, she is the purest heart that I've ever met. But she will tell me to uh, come to bed and stop writing, or she'll kick my ass, basically. <laughs> <laughs> now uh i wanted to move on to something that i meant to ask earlier when you mentioned house of size it, it's i remember that coming uh that being advertised with uh camp i mean not camp crystal lake crystal lake publishing and um it was because of that cover it, it's mm. really cool uh just real quick if you're listening to this want to pause it google uh house of size by aaron drives it's a beautiful color it's a beautiful collage of colors it's really neat how they make the house basically the uh, upper half of the face and um 
I, I was curious, what's your experience working with Joe? Because me and Brian talked with him. I've known Joe for quite a few years. I, I don't know one person that does not like him. <laughs> I love Joe. Joe, Joe, Joe yeah, at Crystal Lake is a gem. <laughs> yeah. He's a really great guy. And, and I published two books with him, Where the Dead Go to Die, and then off the back of that, I, I reprinted House of Size. And it says something as well about a publisher who's willing to reprint a novel that's been out for a number of years and is willing to treat it with the love, care, and dedication that he would give to an original piece of work yeah. coming out that month and uh, advertising it just as much. Incredibly collaborative. Um, and also, I am a. I have no time for bad covers. I have no tolerance for them. You know what I mean? I. You've got one chance. You shouldn't judge a book by a cover, but we all do. And, yes. and anyone who says they don't, they are lying. And so I, I, I was upfront with him. I'm like, I really want to work with you on the cover. Um, and and I have an artist in mind. And I was really, really happy with the way he treated me. And he pays on time, respectful, and never the pressure. Because again. All right, like my first publishing experience, not great. <laughs> and um, it could have been worse because I initially signed with Leisure. Um, and uh, the contract, I was signed up with Don, Don Dioria, who was who the guy who pulled me out of the slush pile with House of Size. He pulled me out and I, I was just like overjoyed <laughs> crying <laughs> that I was going to be working with Don. And then Don was gone, <laughs> and the contract and the contract was kind of divvied up into multiple different kind of factions, and eventually it ended up with Sam Hain, and it didn't get any better. But I wrote and I published three novels pretty, uh, pretty, pretty quickly with them. But then I put all my eggs in one basket, and and then Sam Hain went under, and so I never got the pressure, and never he never even breathed the, uh, the pressure of um, I need to diversify where I put my books. And so I can't put all my eggs in one basket. And there was never any of the pressure from Joe to say, if you want to publish with me, you can only publish with right. me. And I think that that says a lot about a publisher, especially in the the small to medium sized presses mm -hmm. in this day and age, because uh, it is that speaks to a publisher who understands the the writers need to look after themselves Absolutely. as well. And and I think that that's a real a really great thing. But look. Uh, the Sam Hain days are behind me. Um, yeah, and then yeah, one one of many publishing kind of like you know. But you live, you learn. You live, you learn. Exactly. You know what? Leisure uh, veteran here, so yeah. I get you. Yeah. yeah, Mary too. I saw that for all your yeah. listeners. Mary raised her hand because she's got quite a few books. Yeah, nope. yeah. So I'm glad I missed that one. And then Sam Hain wasn't any better. And then I published. Uh, I'd signed uh, signed to publish with uh, Shazim, and I'm I'm cursed. <laughs> You know, like if you would like to, if you have a small up and coming press that you would like to see destroyed. Oh, then I also published, you know, <laughs> with Poltergeist Press, and that also kind of went all pear shaped as well. So, like, um, I, I'm actually not as prolific as I appear to be. I'm just in a in a perpetual loop of republishing books. If you are listening to the show and it's not new, uh, new episode, it's being recorded in 2020 and you hear this years from now, all you got to do to understand what we're talking about is 2019 cheesing, C-H-I-Z-I-N-E incident, or with Aaron's reference to Poltergeist Press 2020, I'm not going to mention any names, just look at Poltergeist Press, it's, it's all a fucking mess in it's, the indie horror a, world. It, it is a mess. Go, sorry, go ahead. Better. I was going to say, I, I went through that um, before Leisure. I went through that with a series of short stories because back then 
in dinosaur times, you used to have to. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the ways that you could get a publisher to notice you was to publish a bunch of short stories. So I had I had a period of uh, a few months there where every time I would sell a story to a magazine, it would fold. And my friend started calling me Typhoid Mary. I was not amused. <laughs> that would be a cool name for a horror title. Oh, oh my gosh, that's hilarious. That's so, a good memoir. Good memoir title, if nothing else. <laughs> Going off that, though, Aaron, I was, I, I was really glad to see uh, Place for Sinners end up with uh, Beneath Hell um, kind of come back out through... Uh, you're working with Glenn on that, right? Yeah, Glenn, Glenn is a really great. Yeah, uh, Glenn is here in Australia. We've we, we are landlocked in the majority of the year. Basically, the way the COVID's been kind of addressed is on a state by state basis, where they essentially they block off the states whenever there's the cases rise. And he's in. He's just over there, and and I know he's there. I know he's real. <laughs> um, and, but I cannot get to him basically, uh, and vice versa. But he's a terrific guy and a total a total champ and a lover of the genre. Um, so I was only too happy to kind of co- collaborate with him. And I was like, I really want to get a new cover. And I I got I, I just hit up Chris Annaline and I was like, man, let's let's do something. I love Chris. He's an absolute gem. And he did a terrific cover for me, and I just couldn't be happier than the, the new cover for A Place for Sinners. And 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 I was happy with the opportunity to finally go through it and to get rid of a lot of sh- a lot of shit. Gosh, there were some excess words in there. I've just <laughs> I, I just got rid of. I went through and I just kind of pared it down. Um, I've matured a lot and changed. The the good thing about where I started off, which is I've I've been writing uh, a house of sizes was. I think almost published 10 years ago originally because uh, I was very young when it, when it, when Don picked me out of the, out of the slush and I've, I've changed a lot and I've matured a lot and my interests and proclivities and the things uh, that whilst there's a continuity there, I can see where I'm evolving and where I'm going. And it's, it's yeah. The going back into uh, kind of go through a place for sinners again in this new version has helped me to be a better writer as well. Cause you continuously, mm-hmm. I, I continuously need to improve. Otherwise, what's the point? Uh, right. You know, I'd end up, you know, keep yeah, learning. I, you, you wouldn't want to get to a point where you stagnate, where you don't want to, where you're not excited to do it, or and you don't feel like you're getting any better at it or learning anything new. You know, like every time you write something, it's like I, you want to be excited about that thing that you're working on. It's like, this is the thing i've ever done <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then and that's like the publishing experience that we were alluding to before is that you got to learn something from each of those things too mm-hmm. I, I learned wonderful things and that will that will hold me in better stead from all those experiences and as awful as some of them were because there was a lot of emotional stuff tied to that wouldn't change anything i can't mm-hmm. because i can't why me why me again well it wasn't just me it was everyone and and we can only learn and hope for the best for everyone involved, including the people who are at the center of it, too. Absolutely. Uh, please don't submit your work to Flame Tree Press. I like that publisher. Because <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I can't really. Do it to I, Don. I, I cannot do it to Don. It's like this is the third <laughs> ship I would have sunk for Don. I, uh, but in all seriousness, it, it would help. It, it would be pretty awesome if you worked with them because uh, why not? Like you and Don would be a good team. Yeah, he's a he's a good egg. I I met, I met Don in person at World Horrorcon in like 2015, 
And it was so great to sit down with him and to actually meet my editor of, of, uh, of a number of years. It was terrific. And he was just such a champ. Um, that, was a, that was a good con. That was fun. I had, a, I had a very good time at that convention. I was so nervous. I knew nobody. I knew no one. I, I just kind of rocked up. And thankfully, I had a couple of people who recognized me and took me under their wings Horror people are kind, great people, and also they they also help you to make sure that you're safe, and and part of that is is it's is making sure that you don't find yourself being taking uh, taken advantage of too, mm-hmm. um and uh and sometimes and a lot of the people who kind of jumped in to help and guide me through that, especially being from another country, um it. I, I'm very grateful and I still am very good friends with all those people too. So yeah. Good times. Good times. <laughs> Pretty. <laughs> yeah. And you know, just even piggybacking off of um, a place for sinners getting a, a new re-release. Um, I saw that you also uh, found a home for cut to care with IFWG um, yeah. who I was not familiar at all with uh, before we talked to Andy Cull, but I guess that's a pretty decent sized uh, publisher in Australia, correct? Yeah, yeah. So they put out Remains by Andy mm-hmm. Cull, and they put out one of probably my favorite horror novel of the past, like quite a number of years, um, called The Grief Hole by Karen Warren, um, which is a terrific novel. Um, and uh, I'm very, very happy. It's a, it's, it's a decent-sized press here with a great international distribution deal attached to it, so I'm really happy um, that my first short story collection is, is has found a home with somebody who really understands it because mm. it's a very, very kind of peculiar theme to wrap it around. Like, I, I love reading themed collections, but this theme was it was esoteric in its design. You know, I want to write a, a collection of horror stories around the cost of caring, and that is that is a, a, a tough pitch for many. But he was like, I get it completely. And there's never been a time for you to particularly. And this is the publisher. Never, there's never been a time for you specifically to tell this story than the way you're feeling in the work that you're doing right now, which is why Damage Incorporated is going to be the lead story there, and a, a number of stories about nurses around when we are around uh, people who are trying to do good but end up hurting others the people who give too much of themselves the people who seem to be doing good but really want something in return and are actually really vindictive Mm -hmm. about the people who you give a hand and they take the whole arm and so it's a collection of stories that ranges from from thrillers to supernatural horror to cosmic horror to to atmospheric kind of uh, weird horror, kind of a spectrum of what I do, what I and what I want to continue to do into the future. I'm really happy that I I found a home there. So that's coming out in 2022. So it's a it'll be it's a it's far off, but it's because they they treat their books uh, very well and they take the time and they pace out their releases. And I'm very happy, very happy. But yeah, it's called Cut to Care, a collection of little hurts. Um, and it's got a terrific introduction by Mick Garris, who has written it for us. And, um, yeah, very happy. Very, very happy. How'd you get that? How, how'd you get him to do the uh, intro? Well, Mick, Mick's great. I've known Mick for about um, probably for about eight, nine years or so. I interviewed him um, when I was in the States. I uh, hit him up and uh, for, for a website that's now defunct. 
And he had said to me, he's like, oh, you're a writer. Let me let me read something of yours. I'm like, you don't have to do that. You really don't have to do that. I'm actually incredibly uncomfortable with that. And he's like, no, no, I'm serious. Give give me something. So I gave him a book of mine called The Fallen Boys, which is my second title. And um, and he read it and he went back to me. He goes, I, I don't want to do this interview over the phone. I, I want to sit down and have lunch with you. And I want to talk about your book. And I want you to let's do an interview in person. And we caught up when I was in L.A. and um, just hit it off and been mates since. So it was kind of an easy thing because whenever I'm back in the States, I always catch up with him. Um, And he's a terrific supporter and champion of the arts. You know, people know him as as a TV or a film guy, but he's a terrific writer as well. But more than anything, he is a champion of of fresh talent. And uh, when I was like, hey, Mick, do you want to run an introduction? He's like, absolutely. He got back to me within like two minutes. And, awesome. and it's like send me send me through the stories and 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 it's it's yeah it's terrific so um and that that's that's a project I'm really excited about because we're also uh I'm I'm paired up with a really terrific producer here in in Australia and we're working on uh, getting it it's it's in development as a TV series that would go far beyond far beyond my collection but it would incorporate other Australian voices. And, and what caring means in different uh, in different parts of Australia with different people from different cultural backgrounds and for it all to be under the umbrella of that and adapting some of my stories but bringing in other voices so it's not just one definition of caring so that's in the development stages and it's really exciting because we're going to be doing a proof concept shoot later in the year or going well next year or going to plan COVID kind of put the brakes on things and and that's terrific too to still have my toe in the film world um and you know house of size has been optioned the script is written um we've we've got a director attached moving towards casting so but it's not real till it's real that's the way i kind of think it's not real till it's real (laughs) and all these things can fall apart at the last moment so it's until between now and then i've got i've got fingers and i've got ideas and i've got a computer Mm -hmm. i'm happy very very happy that's so, awesome. Yeah. All right. So my next question sounds a little bit insensitive. It's going to because you just told us about all this cool stuff that you've got in the pipeline. So I'm wondering as far as novels go, is there anything that you're working on you can tell us about? Um, I've been, <laughs> Yeah, look, I've got a book that's out to sub. I've got I've got a book that I'm very, very happy and proud of. Um, it, it's a book that almost killed me. This book almost freaking killed me to write. Um, and I, and I've, I've spoken about it. So it, it, the title is, is called Lady Guillotine. And it starts off as a, as a book set in, in, a, in a nursing home and ends up uh, when people realize, uh, like the two main characters, a mother and son, realize that they're actually very fundamental pawns in a cosmic horror novel. Um, and uh, and so it goes from something incredibly relatable to something incredibly big. Um, and it went through a number of evolutions over a number of many years. And it actually, I wrote it over a long period of time uh, because I, I had to keep stopping because at that time in my life, um, I, I was going through not a great relationship uh, with, with, with an ex. And then there was a, a terrible breakup. I lived overseas. I went through some rough mental health stuff came back through, came back strong, got better, uh, feeling great. Uh, but the book kind of charts that. And so it was very difficult to look at it. So I, I shelved it for a while and then I came back to it and I polished it and I subbed it and then Shazine picked it up. And then that kind of, I ended up withdrawing it from there and I sat on it again because 
And then 2020 happened. And then the way I felt about the book changed. And I also felt as though it would be naive and also dis. It just didn't seem genuine to me because uh, I'm always looking to write genuine if that if the, to to write a book about aging in 2020 without addressing COVID. <laughs> um, and, and whilst I, it's not like the type of thing, and I, it's not for every project, but it became very, very apparent that whilst it may not be about COVID, it's not about COVID at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it needs to be about what the, how the awful things that happen to us as individuals, as a community, as a country, and as a world change us. Mm-hmm. And what comes next? So um, I'm, yeah. But that book is out to sub. So it's it's with the it's with the the reader gods, and we'll see what happens. But it's something it's something I've held on to because it's a bit personal, and I'm willing to wait until I find the right house for it, as opposed mm-hmm. to rushing into anything. Um, and I've been I, I I've been working on a couple of other books simultaneously, but I've also found writing this year very very hard. Um, I found it. Working at the front line has fatigued me and tired me out. I'm actually, as of today, literally uh, as of recording, I'm on a break for two weeks, and it's the first time I've stopped. It's the first time I've stopped since probably the first time I've really stopped since the last time I saw you, Mary, at Scares, like at Scares. That's probably I've been working back to back, and it has really worn me down. And uh, and whilst I'm completely okay, I just my, I could see that I I wasn't writing as much, and I would go, I'd sit down and write, and I'd be like, oh my god, yes, this is the best, and then just be so tired that I couldn't write for another week or two. And you know, for me personally, it's different for everyone else. For me, writing is a muscle. You know, if I went, if if when I'm at my best, if I went to the gym the way I write, I would be the buffest motherfucker you ever met. <laughs> because, but I'm not that. I am not that at all. But because for me, writing is something that I need to treat like a muscle that I flex every day. Otherwise, it gets flabby and I find it very, very hard to do the lifting. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I'm when I'm writing fit, it pours out of me and it, and it's wonderful. It's the point at which the fingers move and I'm not thinking about it where, and I don't know where the words come from. Mm-hmm. Love that. I need to get back to that point. So these next two weeks is like me treating myself well time. And part of that is getting the muscle back, which I'm really, really excited about um, because I sense I sense the loss terribly uh, because that stuff is writing is so important to me. Mm-hmm. So but yeah, and I've been uh, throughout the 2020, I've been working on screenplays, which are very different beast. Um, it requires a very different skill set. And I've also been collaborating with somebody on that stuff, uh, but it's not writing a novel. And I miss it and I need to get back into it because I've got two unfinished books that I'm desperate to finish because I'm so happy with the way they're turning up and what they are about. Um, I also really wanted to write a really queer book. Um, and uh, and and I, I really just kind of dug into that and lent into it and finally kind of threw away my concerns or nervousness about really just writing something really um, – honest to my own personal experience is something that I've always potentially in the past hid behind a metaphor or through or made people side characters. I just wanted to tell something that was a little bit more authentic to my day-to-day life. Um, and it was funny the, the the book that kind of gave me the courage to kind of, um, kind of go, Aaron, you're being silly. Just be yourself was actually reading cabin at the end of the world by uh, Paul Tremblay. And oh, I nice. just, I, I read that book and, and I've told Paul this and he hates it, but I tell him that every time I see him, he's like, <laughs> shut up. 
I'm like, seriously, he, it, it just it it just went, oh, do you know, you can actually just tell these stories. So it's, I, I've got two books in process in that's just like a little bit more authentic to myself. And they are really um, kind of sitting within one is one is very much a supernatural thriller and one's very much like a, a crime kind of a really twisted crime going down the rabbit hole story which i'm really <laughs> thrilled about but i gotta nice. finish i gotta finish the damn things <laughs> so we'll see how they go we'll see how they go that's excellent i you know I, i'm glad to hear you've got so much going on um on the flip side i'm glad to hear you've got the next two weeks to kind of get yourself squared away a little bit you know like bless you for the stuff that you do for your day-to-day um, like we talked about earlier, um, with, with Pat's wife and with you, you guys, you, you do incredible work, but the burnout is extremely real. And without the next two weeks, you're going to be toast, you know? Uh, so to be able to kind of get back in, flex those muscles and just, you know, go, um, good for you. Enjoy yourself. Um, you and think of it like a battery, man. We're batteries. You got to recharge, or you're gonna right. not. You gotta be exactly. thrown out in the trash, man. That's exactly right. Double A's. So I've, that's exactly right. I've got myself. I'm I'm stocked up with with food and books, and and my computer is charged up. So I'm happy and set for the next couple of weeks. So it's and and again, and it is actually great um, being a, a reader for the Shirley Jackson Awards as well because. It just brings all of this inspirational, mm-hmm. diverse reading into your door. Yes. It's an, it's an enormous amount of work. This is the second year that I've done it. It's an enormous amount of work, but it's incredibly rewarding because it just – I. there is something to be learned even from the worst book, but mm-hmm. the stuff that fortunately comes through that is some of the best. Oh, and, yeah. and it's so great for – because I can't – I can't get overseas to see you all. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I've got a terrific bunch of writer buddies here in my home city, and thank God for them. They're so, they're so good, and we hang out as much as we can. But there's also something to be said about going to the cons, about mm-hmm. selling books over a table, about having to about having to be a showman, about having to spread the you know your wings and to and to meet people and to be on panels. It it juices you up and inspires you. Um, that is missing at the moment. I know we're all missing it. Uh, so reading extra stuff that I normally wouldn't maybe have picked up is doing that in place of going and seeing everyone. This is going to be but, my first year that I was going to go to Scares I Care, my first con. I was also going to see Mary Bryan and the rest uh, for the podcast book signing. I was also going to see Armand yep. Rosamelli and all the other Jersey boys. <laughs> I saw no one this year. This is supposed yeah. to be my first year, man. To see everybody. I know. Oh, I, I feel sorry for people for like that. This was their first year that they were going to do a bunch of cons. It's like, oh, I know, I know. Yeah, I, I, it, I definitely feel sorry for him, and yeah, it sucks. Speaking of, uh, I'm on Rosamelia. He, he's Shelley. Do you know? Do you know Shelley? This is mm-hmm. wife. I, yeah, yeah. Shelly, when I was at Scares, so the last time I was at Scares, um, Shelly, we were hanging out and she just knew that I was massively into the Golden Girls because I was, I'm that guy at a horror convention <laughs> who wears the Golden Girls t-shirt to a horror convention, okay, that's that's me, 
okay. And and I'm also a black t-shirt guy. You know what I mean? I, I am that guy, but I'm also the Golden Girls guy. And anyway, on my last day at, at, at Scares the Care, um, I was in my room just recovering after everyone else had left the hotel. And I got a knock at the door and they're like, sir, there's a package here for you. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> Who knows and, that I'm here? <laughs> and and Shelly had got me all of these little Golden Girls, little Kinko, like little Funko Pops. Oh. And they're all over there on my shelf. I, I felt as though I felt as though I should take advantage of the fact that we're shooting on video and and again say that they are here on my shelf. Uh, on and it's a matter of pride. Uh, and it's yeah, it's, it's it, but awesome. that's the that's the really great thing as well, uh, Patrick. When you get to go to these events, is that you meet really good people and and so often it's not about your books. It's not about your writing. And and often, if that's all you're talking about, is the they're the people that you're not going to be wanting to hang out with and, and shoot the shit with. It's mm-hmm. actually just hanging with people, yes. and it's so much fun. And having those long conversations into the night, I just have to remember to maybe sleep a little bit more because <laughs> by the end of it, by the end of Scares That Care, I am this a horrifically haggard mess. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. and and I, every time I go to Scares the Care, I always bunk up with Chris Emmeline and John Bowden and his son. And I, I'm always in the cot at the end of John's bed. And he just, <laughs> and it's always the same thing every year. He's sitting at the end of the bed, pulling, pulling on his shoes, and he's looking at me, going, "When do you sleep?" <laughs> <laughs> so, but it's, uh, yeah. If, if I can't wait for it to get back, and and look, and Patrick, if you're going to go next year. I'm hoping next year I can go. Fingers crossed if the, that the world comes into some semblance and uh, and let's catch up. That would be I terrific. Would, I would love that. Yeah, because um, I know that Joe was saying, or the Scares of Care profile, I forget which one, said that uh, you can carry over your ticket to next year. Um, I don't know if they're supposed to reach out to people. I haven't heard anything. So I'm, I'm assuming Joe- I have a ticket. He's he's a great guy, and I know that even if you just contacted him, he'd 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 mm. hook you up. Um, hopefully, I can get there. It depends. It largely depends on uh, for Australian uh, for Australia if they're going to open our international borders, which they which they right. are, are all shut off and may remain so potentially for another year, depending on well, what depending on what countries you want to travel to. Obviously, mm. and I'm thinking of all my friends and and. And over there in the States at the moment, things aren't good. Um, and it may be a while until our country allows us to fly into the States. Um, but I want you to know that we're thinking of everyone over there at the moment because it's Australia is, is very fortunate in its size and geography that it's easier to isolate COVID. And also, as awful as it was, the incredibly large bushfires that we had at the beginning of this year, mm. which I remember thinking, oh, gosh, what an awful way to start the year. Only can get better from here. Brum, brum. No. <laughs> the, the, the bushfires actually cut us off from the rest of the world at a fortuit- in a fortuitous way because it stopped people being able to come into the country mm. at a time when it was most crucial and we didn't realise it, but it gave us a buffer advantage when it comes to COVID-19. That wow. ended up being that ended up being massively um, uh, beneficial in the long term in terms of our infection rates. So uh, our, our government is incredibly conservative in terms of letting people in and out of the country at the moment. And I'm hoping though, but if and when if and when the time is right and and I get over there, 
I will be sleeping on all of your couches. And, uh, and I and none of you are allowed to give me bed bugs, and uh, <laughs> and there can be no monkeys involved. And, what about pigs? Uh, no pigs. Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> and and it's going to be really really fun. Yeah. Um. Scares of care. I, I gotta take it for me, my wife, and my son. Uh. I'm hoping because I hear that scares of cares is a family thing. I'm hoping that I could get my son into it and I could be like, not only am I buying books that hopefully you'll get into one day. I know Brian does this too, which is awesome. I love hearing him and Jonathan James and Joe Orlando. All the dads talk about how they like kind of their boys inherit this or their daughters or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to do with my kid. And I want to be like, yeah, guess what? I might not be cool to you in a few years, but I know cool people. So <laughs> cool points. <laughs> it totally is a family-friendly event as well. You get oh, it's yeah. and it's so great. It, Scares in particular it has that vibe and it is welcoming and it's well organized and it's also it's a safe event because safety is acknowledged at the yeah. door. You know, certain things will not be tolerated. There is, you know, it's not like a place where you uh, assumptions are made and you assume somebody's keeping an eye out for you. No, they actually take that seriously. Oh, yeah. um, and, and Brian has always been a very big advocate of that and very transparent. Mm-hmm. And it's a great standard that sets, not just for people uh, who are who are a part of the con, but for the people who are attending it too. Mm-hmm. And it is a great environment for kids because it's not just us authors that are there. There, there are actors there. There are people mm-hmm. who, who like pop culture touch points that I don't even get as well. But you know, but it also is if you're a horror nerd like us, it's it's also super great. I one of my favorite scares moments was I was sharing, I was selling at a table with Patrick Lacey, right? And across from us at the uh, in in the the big hall was the woman from the sh- from the bathtub in the the Shining. Oh yes. Um, she was sitting. She was sitting across from us the entire event. And when you're on the table selling books, there is no downtime. You have to, and it, that's part of the sport. And it's actually, I miss it, being a huckster. And so me and Pat, we're like, you know, and, and if Pat goes to the toilet, you know, I have to go to the bathroom, get some food. I sell his books, and you know, and if and if I get up and leave, he jumps in and he sells my and he sells my books. And then we were sitting there, and we were just tired, and the the, the convention was starting to wrap down. And then wait, the lady from the from the bathtub in The Shining crosses the room and goes to Pat and she's like, I like the cover of your book. What is your name? And he had, and I just watched Patrick Lacey <laughs> melt into this nervous little schoolboy who was like, it was just the most adorable thing. Oh. And, and he, and he pitched his book to, to, to this woman who had come over from overseas and she's like, Oh, I could never read that, but I love the cover. <laughs> and it's just, it's far too scary, far too scary sounding. And, and anyway, and she went back across the table. And I just looked at Pat, and, and I'm, and he's like, "Did you get a photo of that?" And I'm like, "I got five. <laughs> you can make a gif. You can make a gif out of the photographs that I just took." Then, so you also get a chance to be with your peers, but also you can kind of be the nerd that we all are too, because you know, people who hang out and go to this stuff, we love it too. So, and yeah. plus, mm, it's rejuvenating. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm so really, I'm really looking towards that. Um, Mary, what are you working on? Me, I am just about done with my cosmic horror haunted house novel, Ooh. which I'm very excited about. I'm, I mean, I'm literally, it's like Aaron said, I've had, in a way that I didn't realize that it was uh, manifesting itself, I think I've had a bit of fatigue too this year because this novel, I'm really down to literally 
the last five or six thousand words and it's taking me forever. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's it's I mean, I, I love the story. I'm enjoying writing it. And then I can write maybe like 500 words, pat myself up on the back and go take a nap. You know, <laughs> so it's taken me it's, it's it's taken me a while, but I'm, I'm working on that. I'm reading for the Shirley Jackson Awards, too. It's my first year. I'm very, very honored. Um, How'd you get hooked up with that? I was going to actually ask that afterwards. Well, Jack Karinga, who knows that I can never say no to him, uh, asked me if I'd be interested in being a juror this year. I was like, yes, <laughs> I would be delighted. You don't I have enough on your plate, hour. right? <laughs> so I uh, I agreed to that. I'm uh, I'm working on a paper that I'm presenting in February at a virtual conference on Silent Hill, which I'm kind of excited nice. about. Oh. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. It's it's all an academic examination of the the religious cult in Silent Hill and the religion that they go by, which the movies keep messing up, and and which you really have to get right to get all of the other nuances in Silent Hill, all the mechanics to work, you know. So I'm doing that and uh, cosmic shenanigans. I'm doing the Ghost Riders podcast. I'm you know trying to trying to keep busy, stay out of trouble. <laughs> Tell yeah. us a little bit about the uh, Ghost Riders podcast. Well, um, one of the things that was difficult about no longer doing the horror show with Brian Keene, I mean, I I had mixed feelings about it, mostly because I know that Brian was getting burned out. He was mm. getting tired. You know, he had a number of reasons for um, not for needing to stop the podcast. I think he misses it. In a way, but not, but I, I think he understands, you know, and it sort of supersedes any, any missing of doing the podcast that, that he really needed to focus on other things. You know, he wanted to do more writing. He wanted to have more time to spend with, you know, his kids and with me and, um, and it takes, you know, it took a lot of time and it took a lot of emotional energy because it, it, it evolved at least the news portion into something where we covered very heavy topics mm. And, and it's rough. I mean, it, it's, it's, we, we only covered like heavy topics that were, you know, not related to us directly that we didn't have to, you know, really, you know, take, follow through the, to the legal and the legal procedure, the whole nine yards. I can only imagine what it's like for people whose job it is, you know, to, to deal with this kind of stuff all the time. But, yeah. um, but it was heavy stuff. And so yeah. I, I think, uh, one of the things I do miss is being able to be something of a watchdog for the genre in in at least in terms of malfeasance of publishers and things like that. But um, but when we quit, I think. I think Brian had. A plan in mind, but I think that Matt and Dave felt a little bit lost, not that they didn't understand. They certainly did. But I think that they, um, I think they enjoyed doing the podcast, and I, I think that they saw the benefits of a lot of what the podcast was doing, and they thought, you know, maybe we should do a podcast that we wanted to separate from the horror show with Brian. We didn't want it to be like we were joking. We didn't want it to be like that sitcom, you know, or that show that you watch <laughs> for like ten years, and then the main character leaves, and they try to replace him with somebody else, or or they just try <laughs> to do it without the character, and you're like, I'm not watching this show anymore. <laughs> or like with like, Friends, how they did a spinoff, uh, it, Joey. 
exactly. <laughs> like we didn't want to be Joey. You know, we wanted to have something different. So we kind of, you know, retooled our focus. We decided we weren't going to cover heavy news. Um, that we were mostly going to focus on things about horror that we love, you know, new movies we, we'd seen, books, video games, that kind of thing. And that we'd talk about writing advice, which is something we never did on the horror show because it just wasn't really geared for that. You know, it just it, I mean, it, horror, I mean, business stuff would come up, you know, but this would be more of a if you've just started writing and you have like basic questions about how you get stuff done then you kind of have a broad range of experiences um, from all of us. And, and you know, we, we put our two cents in and tell you what we think of how, you know, how these different aspects of the business work. So, I mean, so far it's been fun. It's nice. Um, I get a chance to talk to, you know, some of my closest friends once a week, you know, so it's, mm. it's, it's been good, you know, and it's, it's, <laughs> it's not, academic the way I I try to make cosmic shenanigans academic where I sort of you know I I look at you know I look at it from a sort of uh you know critical analysis point of view it's 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 a little mix of funny and silly and what we hope is helpful and fun and it's it's been good it's been good so far that's awesome yeah um I I just wanted to ask that at one point but you brought it up because it's it's got a bunch of people that know what they're talking about. Y'all are fun <laughs> to listen to. So right on. That's that's more information than I even expected. Um, you know what? I'm going to brag about me and Brennan real quick because we just ended something today that I'm proud of. Um, I found out when, we, when I first asked him if he wanted to come on the show that me and him are thinking the same damn thing almost all the time. And he asked me if we wanted to um, – if he – if we want to write a story together, if I'd be oh, interested, nice. I was like, yeah, that'd be great. I wanted to ask you too. long story short. We wrote one book, 50,000 words, wrote a second. That long just, story is not short at all. Just finished. <laughs> <laughs> we just finished the third one. And it could be like one huge tome. We don't know yet. Cause Whoa. we're still new at this. It yeah. is 165,000 words. It's dark fantasy. And I'm like, how do we do that without an outline? <laughs> so that is terrific. I I had to tell you guys I'm really proud of it. It's gonna take a long time to edit it, but it, it just happened today. I'm really excited. Well, fantastic! Congratulations. Congratulations. That is so yes. good. That's an yeah. enormous achievement. I'm I'm hoping we can get published one day. <laughs> are, are you gonna write it under your own names, or are you gonna mash them together into like you know like a Brangelina type name? Ronald Kelly did that person. for us. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, he uh, in his recent Christmas uh, uh, collection, he named a character Brennan McDonough. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, maybe we'll go with that name. Um, so before, that. congratulations, guys! That's really great news. Thank, thank you very much. Um, before we wrap up, because we've had you guys here for over two hours now, um, appreciate your time. I wanted to ask everyone here if you have anything that you want to throw out there. It can be a silly sound, a random noise, or a fact, or nothing at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that. No, yeah. Mary. Uh, oh, have you got anything, Mary? I got nothing really. No. <laughs> oh, look, I look, I, I, I lit. Oh, we've lost. Have we lost someone? Brennan. Uh oh. He was scared. He was scared of the noise that I may have been preempting <laughs> to make. Oh, there he is. That there was he weird. Is back. Uh, Skype just gave up on me, I guess. 
Whoa, your mic volume, sir. <laughs> is, it, is it super loud? It was for like a second. Oh, okay. Very strange. <laughs> okay. Professional. Oh, look, I I don't have a no- I don't have a noise for you, but because literally, <laughs> right, so I'm I'm at my desk, right, which is a combination. It's it's basically hoarded with um with a monitor that I've nicked from work, and everything's propped up on massive times of hardcover books, basically, <laughs> like. The, the the laptop is sitting on like almost 14 novels on a pile of like novels like this. That's why it's at this <laughs> elevation, right? And one of the books that didn't make the pile cut was this, was this, because it's literally sitting here right in front of me, which is uh, a collection of short stories by David J. Scow, right? Ooh. And which is terrific. Um, the noise I'll make for you is, is the inscription that David wrote in it for me. Okay. Um, okay. And, and, and <laughs> all right, all right. This one's for Aaron. The inscription that fucking has the fucking word fucking in it more fucking times than any other fucking book I've signed to fucking day. Fucking love you, David J. Scow. <laughs> that is <laughs> awesome. Dude, he wrote one of the greatest, co-wrote one of the greatest uh, movies of the '90s, The Crow. It's just so fucking good. Fuck. <laughs> good stuff it's good stuff the stuff he's doing on creep show at the moment is really terrific yes. as well his episode of the finger um oh, yes. that was, was awesome. just was just delightful and it's and it's great to see uh david's short fiction coming to life on the big screen it's really really lovely actually i like i like john skip's episode and i really like mallerman's episode um i got one blu-ray uh, this year, and that was Creep Show when it came out on Blu-ray. It's, it's a great collection. It's um, very good. Brendan, you got any random sounds, words, or tidbits that you want to throw I out mean, there? I, could, I could just say fuck a lot, but I'm not sure I could beat that inscription. Nope. I don't think anyone can beat David J. Scott when it comes to Potty Mouse. I don't think we can. <laughs> not even going to try. No. All right. Great, great uh, advice, Brennan. So where can people follow you, Aaron? <laughs> Um, you can follow me on on, on streets. Um, <laughs> uh, That's a you new can, in a, Through the in basement a, windows. Yep, through the basement window. Uh, perhaps in a large white panel van. Um, <laughs> Windowless, or, of course. My, fa- my favorite is in sewers. Follow oh, me. Yeah, yeah, nice. yeah, subterranean. Or if that sounds a bit messy, you can always try Twitter. <laughs> At Aaron Dries. Um, that's the best way to interact with me or feel free to touch base with me via my website, which is aaronddries.com. Yeah. Twitter or my face, uh, or Twitter or my, um, website is the best way to touch base. I'm very interactive on Twitter. So come say hi. I usually talk about books and movies and life and things like that. Nice. So come hang. <laughs> Mary, where can people follow you? I am at, uh, marysangemoney.com or at Twitter. I mean, I don't really use many other social media things other than Twitter at this point, and it's at Mary Sangiovanni. Fantastic. Well, although I kind of like the white panel van idea, I'm especially <laughs> partial to people offering me candy. <laughs> <laughs> or puppies. If it says puppies on the or side. Puppies. Free puppies. Oh, oh my gosh, yes. I would absolutely get kidnapped so easily. That's how I. <laughs> This is how I ended up in New Jersey in Mary's basement. Exactly. <laughs> free puppies. It was free probably puppies. a lot of fans like that in Jersey, man. Free puppies. And then I said, here, smell this smell this cloth. Poor <laughs> <laughs> floor, my a, favorite. What a nice nap that was. <laughs> Wait, would that be the first thing you say if you wake up in a strange basement? 
Oh, seriously, how great is it to wake up from a nice restful sleep, though? Like, you know, I could, yeah, I've been kidnapped, but hey, I just, I'm feeling sprat, you know? Like it's, I get it's, the highest quality kidnapping drugs. I just, uh, yeah. So no he did that. say that, you know, in his work, he likes to find hope in bleakness. And if that's not <laughs> bleakness, I don't know what is. That's right, yeah. exactly. I just want to tell everyone about a new show, a new podcast. It'll be a monthly show, one episode per month. Uh, so I just repeated myself. It's uh, going to be me, Brennan LaFaro, and Ken McKinley called And Mary, I think this is up your alley, based on a older comment you made about a show that dissects uh, classic horror um, paperbacks. It's called Unburying the Dead. Uh Dead Headspace will be on a new upcoming podcast network run by Ken McKinley, and it is called uh, Silver Shamrock Horrorcast. I'm not sure what other shows are going to be on there besides ours, this one, and uh, Dead Headspace, so no further questions. And the show is basically exhuming classic horror paperbacks for a new generation. The very first paperback, we gave it some thought, and we wanted to go with a modern author. Um, it is going to be Ghoul by Brian Keane. Um, I read the last hundred pages in one day. It's uh, it's a damn good book. That was my first Keane book, actually. And I'm reading uh, End of the Road right now. And I, I'm not saying this because you're here, Mary, or Brian may hear this, but that book's like a Bible to me. Like, I'm learning about things I have not heard about, how the industry used to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a lot of writers, I'm a student of this genre, so it's very helpful. Um, this is the season finale. I am very thankful for both of you for being here and offering us your time. Um, I love you both and everything that you've done. You guys mean a lot to me. And Brennan, I love you too, buddy. And it means so much that you're my co-host. Um, if no one has anything else to say, just thank you. And listeners, I appreciate you. everyone. Thank you. And con- again, congratulations on finishing the book, guys. That is a an amazing, beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. And also speak, <laughs> this is not all about Brian. And uh, don't tell him uh, that to listen to this episode. I don't want his head to get bigger. <laughs> but he will be the first guest on season two. So uh, I feel like part of my ass is going to get kicked for some dumb thing I'll say. But... <laughs> <laughs> January 18th, 2021. Who, who, who is that? Sorry, who did you say? He's going to be the guest. Uh, a new guy named Brian Keane. Brian Keane. Never funny. heard of him. Never heard of him. <laughs> that guy. That guy. Oh, that guy. <laughs> you might. Yeah. Let's see how he goes. <laughs> Everybody have a great one. Thank you so much for joining us through season one. We will be back in a month. Have a nice one. Thank you. We are in your mind. We are all around. You are now leaving. Deadhead space. Calling the underworld right now. <laughs> We're busy right now. <laughs> Please leave a message after the scream. I believe Jed Shepard has the number to the underworld. <laughs> Host 2 is a thing, man. Host 2 yeah. happening. Yep, yep. Did you see the first one? Did it come to Australia yet? Not yet, not yet, but it's coming. That's crazy. I know, hey. We get we either get things weirdly early or way, way too late, or we don't get them at all. 
but that's all right. You know, the good thing about being a horror fan is that you're used to hunting for all the good stuff. So the idea of things just not being instantly accessible to you is kind of like, that's all right. I'm used to it. Hi. Hi. Hello. We've got Mary, but we've booted you out, Patrick. It's it's There's Lord of the Flies. Goodbye, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Take over, Aaron. <laughs> And I have the house to myself. I kicked my <laughs> I kicked my partner out. <laughs> you even. Yeah, he was he was really really um annoyed at me. I was like, you could either leave or you could sit in the room for two hours, like Kirsty Swanson in in Flowers in the Attic. And he was like, I'll go, but I'm resentful <laughs> of the fact that you're making me put on pants. <laughs> Interesting di- uh, dynamic there between you two. <laughs> that attitude is or that that attitude is everywhere in quarantine, man. Yeah, I'm working just... every day. It's not the same for me. <laughs> yeah, are the minority. Are we allowed to swear? Fuck no, Aaron. Okay. You gotta stop doing that. You gotta. It just confuses just everybody. Nobody likes that. <laughs> Jonathan Taylor thought it was funny. <laughs> That's one out of sixty-one people. That's true. My ratio I think it's is four. It's, I think it's an important thing to establish up front. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Yeah.